but then when you're driving down in it, you, you know, you recognize uh, how huge that really is. And, and it's one of many that were conduits for the ice and then, you know, the resultant meltwater afterward. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grand America Show. Uh, we're going to be playing our... <laughs> outro of the trip with randall and ed and bill and the gang um playing an outro oh the end yeah we're gonna play the outro interview where we looked at all the pictures and they told us about their trip and we talked about all sorts of fun stuff but first right so well, hang on if people haven't as always graham crawling out from under the bus dunlop how's it going buddy <laughs> I've been hit by a bus a couple times lately. <laughs> Feeling okay. <laughs> what did you want to say there? If people don't know Randall and if they haven't listened to the previous episode or Seems the second unlikely. last episode, it's Randall Carlson and, and Ed Nightingale. And oh, yeah. I guess if people, we probably got some new listeners with Duncan. So that way. Yeah. So anyway, Rand, go back Rand, to 129. Listen to 129 and then listen to this episode. Yeah. Randall Carlson's. Got a website like Sacred Geometry International, and he's doing all kinds of cataclysm, catastrophic research, that type of stuff. It's pretty pretty cool stuff. And Ed Nightingale talks about the Giza Plateau and the geometry of that. And uh, yeah, so that's it's an exciting wrap up to their trip here in Alberta. Yeah, and uh, definitely some never before heard things. So, uh, or at least you'll hear them soon. I'm not, I'm sure, but we were, we got some exclusives. Uh, I would say we might even have enough background audio for like a secret audio tape session one day or something too. Yeah. That's going to take a while to clean up when uh, I cut out all the chip eating <laughs> in between that thing's pretty sensitive. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody had the munchies. Um, so yeah. How you been buddy? It's uh, been a while good. since we've been in the studio alone. Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah, I'm excited too because we also are going to have Joseph Druitt coming on to do a, an astrological reading for us, which kind of fits in with the whole uh, Randall and Ed thing too because we were talking a lot about procession and, uh, or a little bit about it, procession and the, uh, what do you call it? The constellations and all that stuff, right? Yeah, but it's not procession, it's an orbit. Yeah. It's our binary star, Nibiru. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you like that, eh? People are telling us to get in there. I thought I'd catch you off guard. Tricking me with the UFO quote of the week, and I've got a little tiny one ready because this is going to be a long intro. Um, That's what she said. If you had a dollar for every time you said that. <laughs> Fuck. I'm convinced there was. Oh, no. I've messed up my thing here uh oh yeah I was convinced I am convinced there was thought behind the thing's maneuvers that was Lieutenant George Gorman F-51 pilot after being in a 30 minute dogfight with a small UFO in 1948 that's it buddy 1948 yeah Cold War no that was before the Cold War. Pre-Cold War? Yeah, that was pre-Cold War. That was like right after the World War II was settling down. One year after Roswell kind of thing. So still nice and early into ufology. Hmm. Good stuff. And George Gorman had a 30-minute dogfight with one. Out of boy, George. Did he win? 
So he says. He lived, he lived to quote about it. So he says. Ooh, the skepticism is creeping in on old ground. It was just a matter of time, I suppose. Hey, I wanted to share a couple things that come across my plate recently. Kind yeah. of mini, mini synchronicities, if you don't mind. Now, now I've got to find them. Did you hear? Uh, I don't know if they're even considered synchronicities. But... They are now. I'm a rambling gram with synchronicities all over the web. And Aaron is skeptical about everyone. I wonder how many people walk around whistling that. So catchy. I might catch myself whistling it all the time. So I just heard today Ben Ben from Mysterious Universe talking about his uh, his bike accident. Have you heard about it? No. So he's it's it's kind of more funny than a synchronicity, although and it shouldn't be funny because it's a le legit like accident. But he's uh, he's going down the right hand lane. There's a bunch of people turn left, right, and like all clogged up. And he's going down the right hand lane, and this lady pulls out in front of him, and he smokes smokes into her car, hits her hits her car pretty hard, tumbles off his bike. His bike slams into like a light pole, and uh, you know the time slows down, all that kind of stuff, right? And he and he he looks up from the ground, right. And what's the first thing he sees? A city bus driving by with his wife in it. Really? Yeah. <laughs> he notices his wife in the city bus. Huh. 7.5. That's pretty cool, eh? And his wife texts him, uh, Ben, are you, are you okay? I just saw saw somebody get in a motorcycle accident. It looked like you. So is he okay? Yeah, he's okay. Yeah. Good to know. It's okay to hit cars. So, um... So, um, I got another one. Terrence McKenna. Terrence McKenna yeah. is dead. The only so two times. Not, are you just pulling synchronicities out of history? Yeah, okay, man. This is three mini ones I'm telling you about. Terrence McKenna, because they just all came across my awareness. Terrence McKenna. How so? Through media. What sort of media? New media. New media. Yeah. A podcast yeah and and emails and stuff okay you know? you're not just ripping these off no from, no okay, it's just they're okay, all coming yeah. in at the same time right i just hope we're not doing redoing a mysterious universe segment no <laughs> no <laughs> terrence mccann oh i think this might have been on the grail actually the, the Grailian report so i'm kind of mixing up all of them you're mixing matching your plagiarism <laughs> yeah Attaboy. it's not plagiarism if i'm just relating somebody okay. else's synchronicity so terrence mckenna <laughs> The only two times a box of matches has caught in fire in his pocket when he was about to share, when he was about to give somebody DMT. I don't even know what to say to that. That's fucking amazing, eh? I don't, I don't believe it. What do you mean you don't believe? You don't believe Terrence McKenna after all this? You talked to his brother and you just yeah, think he's lying or you what? Think that's real? His match has got it. It's too. I, in the back in the sixties or seventies or whenever that, that was, he says it. It's an audio file of him saying it. Okay, if I hear him say it, I'll believe it. Okay. Oh boy, the is next that a one, good thing or a bad thing? I know. I was thinking that too. I'm like, that's kind of got to be a sign. Be careful of the DM. Oh, DMT. Speaking of DMT. <laughs> When do you don't want to talk about it? No. Okay, we'll talk about it after the show. I expect a full trip report. I don't know. I, I wish we got, would have got your, your trip report from the weekend on audio tape, on audio, uh, on recording. 
There was all you would have heard was a river. <laughs> there was a whole lot of talking. No, I'm talking about that when you disclose your your night of oh, oh. feeling like you're gonna die for six hours. Yeah, no. Yeah, that no, one's yeah, no. That one's in the closet. So I'm gonna have to ad lib this next one because I um when I've we get lost, to two hundred subscribers, I'll tell that story. I've lost track um of this here. Actually, I just found it. Found what? The last synchronicity. This is this is just for my uh, coast to coast email. So actually, it is a mix of all the yeah. tape radio shows. And somebody was on there talking about synchronicities and the role of synchronicities and how it relates to things as consciousness, such as consciousness. And they're talking about the work of Carl Jung and Rupert Sheldrake. Um. He says, one such example of a synchronicity was relayed to Cavelli. That's who was there. Cynthia Cavelli was talking about it by her therapist friend who had a client who could never seem to grasp how much trouble his marriage was in. The therapist, in exasperation, threw up his hands and said, your marriage is like a car wreck. And just as he said the words car wreck, there was a car accident right outside the office. It really shook up the client and the message finally got through. She recounted. Synchronicities seem to occur more frequently to people who are going through major times of change in their lives. <laughs> Bob Roth, who's, uh, he, he was, uh, he was sharing his, uh, stories of musical synchronicity, such as when he was outside with a group of people watching a meteor shower and the song pennies from heaven came on up on a random iPod shuffle. So how does, Darren of Grammarica rate those two. I I choose not to. Really? Yeah. Because they're like plagiarized? Yeah. Jesus, you're hard. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys, I won't do it. What else you got? Well, I, I got some, some feedback from... First of all, I want to say thanks for all the feedback uh, and, and stories from listeners. So I got some emails and stuff, and we have the best listeners, seriously. The most balanced, like super open-minded, yet not like fully to one side or the other. Like yeah, They have absolutely. really good, good uh, insight. We've got a good little community for one. So I'll read one here. It's from Anne. She says, Dear Graham, I'm sorry that my first email to you is negative, but I got You're so... You're starting to say Graham like I do. No. Really? Yeah. Dear Graham, I'm sorry that my first email to you is negative, but I got so irritated by the interview with John Micah that I couldn't help it. It was the first time listening to Grammarica that I heard a guest that I disagreed with so much that I couldn't finish listening. It sounded as if he was just parroting the anti-vaccination rhetoric from groups who pick and choose from the studies available to bolster their own agendas. He maintained that he wasn't trying to change people's minds, but to help people be aware of the issue but he seemed to lack credible data. He didn't seem to have a well-formed argument for his thesis. At the point where he said he didn't like the concept of herd immunity because we are people, not cattle, I stopped listening. I really tried to give him a chance and have an open mind to new ideas, but he wasn't presenting me with any new ideas, and the way he communicated made him seem un unintelligent. The apparent increase in cases of people with autism is alarming, but there is still a lot of research to be done on possible causes. I really enjoy the show, including the long intros, and I'm glad that John is getting exposure for his book. I hope that with more experience in speaking about it, he can learn the skills to present his information more clearly for skeptical people. Keep up the good work, and congratulations on the new studio. Stude. 
Yeah, thanks, yeah, we Sam. Got the, we got a few of those. Yeah, no, I under, we understand what what she's saying. It's yeah. hard. It's hard at the time to kind of wrap your head around challenging how to challenge that type of thing. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just it's a. I understand. Yeah, but I like how she has the positive stuff to say for him too. That she's still okay with the story and getting it out and all that. But he's got to polish up on his. He's got to do some polishing. Yeah. Huh. Well, here's another one. This is from. Oh, we got a new jingle from Joel too. This is from Joel. What? You this got a jingle? And you didn't yeah, tell this him? is from uh, Toad and the Frog. Frog this one we played? No, this is a new one. They've polished it up again. This is the third revision. Rev three. Rev three. Play it. Oh, really? Yeah. You want me to? Fuck. I don't know if. I don't know if it's gonna work. Why wouldn't it work? Well, my audio file. Down and Graham going deep. <laughs> It's a profound UFO quote of a week. Oh, I like it. I'm going to dub in there. Kind of. It's a profound UFO quote of a I was really prepared. I would have played that for the profound UFO quote of the week. But so he's he's also got an experience to share. While I'm on the subject, I have my own UFO experience to share. I've had three different UFO sightings in my life, but the first two were just unusual glowing lights, also known as swamp gas, Chinese lanterns, though they were neither. <laughs> the last experience I had that was very odd, and I don't know of a similar report or sighting like it. I was walking up a country lane near where I lived at the time, trying to get a signal on my phone so I could send a text as the signal was terrible in that area. While I was looking at the phone and waving it in the air, as you do when you have no signal, I noticed that what I, what I thought was a small black helicopter moving towards me. A second later, I realized it wasn't a helicopter as it was making no noise and it also seemed alive almost somehow. I was immediately paralyzed on the spot with fear at this moment. And then the thing appeared to change shape shape somehow. And to my relief though, was passing harmlessly overhead. I watched it until it disappeared out of my sight, trying to figure out what it was that I had just seen to this day. I still don't have any idea. Curiously enough, it was flying below airspace, hard to judge height, but no more than a few hundred feet off the ground. And in the direction of the USA owned Mentworth Hill, Considering I had my phone in my hand, I wish I had taken a picture. But even if the thought had occurred to me in the moment, I would have just been a pick of a smallish gray grainy object in the a smallish dark grainy object in the sky. Pretty much how the thing looked in real life. My own ideas on it, what it was, is either some secret drone drone with cloaking device malfunctioning, or some bird caught up in a sheet of tarp or cloth frantically trying to flap its way out of it very strange i would love to know if anyone has ever seen something similar though looking forward to the next show cheers joel so joel thanks for the experience and thanks for the jingle see this is what i mean by like he's not just jumping to conclusions right no well i mean you know a drone with a cloaking device failure is pretty cool yeah but he's not 
but he's not <laughs> but he's not you know automatically saying it's aliens or something like that right true that and a bird with a tarp like you know these are like guys trying to come up with like rational conclusions maybe it was a true. bird with a, one of those empty six packs things stuck on its neck you know like they always told you no those were for dolphins how the fuck is a dolphin because they go st- down to the water and the six pack thing gets stuck in the dolphins and and they can't just break it. No. Come on. Oh, they were killing dolphins back in the 80s. No, that's bullshit. It was birds. It was dolphins. Anyways, <laughs> it was obviously a big black cloak, not just a little six-pack holder. Yeah. So, anyways, thanks. I like that. Check Absolutely. And thanks for the jingle. Maybe it's a bird with a malfunctioning cloaking device. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe you're a bird. Yep. Thanks for the jingle. That's uh, just another way to, to, to help out the show and support our value for value model. Uh, jingles, stories, reviews. Sign them motherfuckers up for the newsletter. Yeah, thanks to everybody for contributing because it would be really hard to do this without you. We've covered uh, helped cover some of our expenses here for sure. It's been a huge help. Yeah, absolutely. If you want to check out how you can uh, help with the show financially, uh, head over to grimeamerica.ca slash support and all the different options are there. Uh, we got a few new subscribers in the last few days. Nice. I don't have them handy, but we should do a tribute show soon. Maybe that's what we'll do on the mixtape thing. Okay, sure. With that, when I cut out the chip eating. Yeah. So yeah, uh, support the show. We are going to jump into the chat with Ronald. Before we do that, we're going to do a little, uh, talk a little astrology here with... Joseph Druitt. Joseph. Yeah, he's been a listener, and he sent us in some... Uh, we've read out some of his uh, synchronicities on the show before, and he's uh, he's recently quit his day job and started an astrology practice. So he says, uh, you know, if we have interest to, to chat with him about it, so he's going to do our, our birth charts, and um, he's doing it for a donation basis for a while. And, um, yeah, we're going to talk about his stuff and get a reading. Value for value. I guess we should call him up then, eh? Yeah, I thought you'd already done that. Oh. <laughs> I'm on the ball, Dunlop. Are you being sarcastic? No, never. Oh. Hello, guys. Hey, Joseph. Hey, Joseph. Thanks for coming on the show with us here. Um, we were just you know, going through our intro, mentioning that you're uh, starting your astrology practice, so we thought we'd get in there with you and get a reading. Okay. How's how's that going so far? Quite well. I've had a busy few weeks, actually. Oh, good. Yeah. And you're doing the value for value thing right now? Yeah, yeah. I like it. It's And that's actually working well for me. People have been quite generous. Very cool. I, lo- I love that that idea that like people can actually, if they, if they use your service, that donating is a fine way to do it, right? Like, why do we have to put a price on everything? Why can't we just say, hey donate what you think like whenever that happens i donate a decent amount yeah i've noticed that that's what people have done it's uh like if you put a price tag on it then they kind of then they're kind of uh skeptical of it and they're trying to say okay is he just trying to work me is he just trying to rip me off and and then if you say no afterwards you tell me how you how valuable you thought it was and just give me that and so that way uh, no matter how valuable they think it was they feel like they got their money's worth it's the ultimate rating system too <laughs> yeah Keeps that's you on true your toes. <laughs> it's true 
Yeah, I figured if I sucked, everybody would just give me nothing or just a couple bucks. And then you'd be back to your old job. Yeah. <laughs> like us. How, how's the, how's the, uh, can I, can I ask you, can I ask you how, if you're, if you, I, if you're into the, uh, if you've started studying the occult and stuff, like you mentioned in your email? Yeah. Yeah, I have. How's that going for you? Pretty good. I haven't stuck with any uh, particular group, any order, and that might be to my to my detriment. I mean, I just haven't been diligent in that. But, right. Um, just getting, I, yeah. getting your feet wet right now, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Taking my time with it. I don't think it's something that you want to rush. So. Mm. I would agree with that. We're gonna have. Uh, I think we're gonna try and have Lon Milo Duquette on before Paradigm Symposium. Um, he's uh he's been dabbling in that for a long time and i i want to learn more about it myself so your email really intrigued me how you were searching for different different orders and stuff yeah it's a it's a lifelong journey and i think that when you find the one that really resonates with you that's the one you want to stick with but there's so many to choose from um, and it's a serious thing so you don't want to just pick the first one that comes around and so i think that yeah. So what is the difference between like you, you sent us these charts are very comprehensive. So we gave you our, our, um, and complex and, and yeah. And complex and, and information. And you, and you sent us this chart. Now I, I didn't realize that the chart was involved. Like I always thought that you could just get like an astrological reading, like, or, or let, how am I supposed to, how am I supposed to ask, ask this question? So what's the difference between this chart and a reading and like the, the thing you would see in the paper every month, like just saying like cancer has got, you know, this so, going on. Good horoscope writers take all that's going on in the sky at the moment and they kind of generalize what that means for each of the 12 sun signs. Okay. And so... And there is a way to do that that's of some value. Um, crappy horoscope writers just you know make things up, and it's just <laughs> it's just total bullshit. But it's really only taking one one body in the sky, the sun, and just kind of putting all the focus on that. So it's just everybody out there with cancer or the sun in. Well, like for example, right now, everybody with the sun in Virgo is having a ton going on in their chart. And so the horoscope, a good horoscope writer could point this out. Jupiter is going to be crossing over there. Mercury crossed over it. Venus will be crossing over it in a couple months. And so there's going to be a lot going on for Virgos. But it's still only taking one thing into account. It's the same thing for anybody with a Virgo moon or a Virgo Mercury or Virgo anything else. Hmm. I'm a Pisces, I think. I can't remember if I changed when the new sign came out. I don't well, does the new about. sign really exist, or was that just hoopla? It's it can, it's conflating two two things. There's the the stars in the sky, the, actual, the constellations as they're defined by astronomers, and then there's the zodiac signs as they're defined by astrologers, which is just thirty degree sections of the sky marked out by definition ever since you know three hundred BC or whenever. Um, or even earlier, maybe a few hundred years earlier in Babylon, Aries just marked the spring equinox. And so right. the procession, I mean, and they knew about the procession of the equinoxes. The Egyptians knew about it. The Greeks knew about it. Plato wrote about it. And they knew that the, 
you know, the equinox has changed over time. But the sign of Aries still represents the, those first 30 days or so after the spring equinox. And then Taurus the next 30 days, et cetera, et cetera. So, so. I, I always get those two not mixed up, really, but I forgot that there's a, big, there's a difference between the zodiac and the constellations. Does that happen to a lot of people? Yeah, yeah. There's, it's a common misunderstanding. Mis yeah. Okay. And it's, uh, it's kind of exploited by skeptics and scientists where they, uh, every once in a while you see this article that says astrologers have been getting it wrong all, you know, all these years. There's really 13 signs. Your sun sign really might be off by 20 degrees or something. And, but once again, it's just conflating two things. And, and actually, Indian astrology. Uh, they do take precession into account, and so they do shift everything about twenty-four degrees. Um, so, hmm. so while I'm a, I'm, I'm a Capricorn in what is called tropical astrology, which is what Western most Western astrologers use, um, I'm a Sagittarius in Indian astrology. So. <laughs> wow, am I still a Pisces anyway? Um, I believe you would be an Aquarius. The age of Aquarius. Ooh, I like it. Let's go with that one. Yeah, you'd be an Aquarius in Indian astrology. But. Uh, you, and I'm an Indian. Do you know mine then too? Or? That, that, that's Jyotish, uh, East Indian astrology. Like, Vedic. <laughs> We're cousins. <laughs> Back in the Denisovian days. <laughs> My Denisovian DNA. That was, that's a long migration. Yeah, exactly. So am I a cancer in, in India as well? Uh, no, you'd be a Gemini. Oh, wow. It's a 24 uh -huh. degrees, and so... Right, right, so everybody kind of shifts a little bit, or most yeah, people... most people most will people, shift yeah. one sign back. Unless you're on the cusp of one, I guess, right? On yeah. the inside cusp, I don't know how you'd call that. Well, just anybody with the late degrees, anything, anybody past anything after 25 degrees. or 26, right? Mm. right? Then you're going to be in the same sign. Right, okay. Okay, so, so can we, um, how would we do this now? Can you kind of give us a... I know this is really tough for you because you, you, you would normally spend an hour with somebody, but unfortunately we don't have that much time. So, so can you give us like a highlight of, of, of ours and then maybe show us how we are somewhere? Uh, maybe we have similarities in some ways. Yeah. Let me, let me just talk about those similarities because they are, are differences. <laughs> there, there are some differences too. You both have water uh, sun signs and they're actually off by, or they're, 20 degrees or 120 degrees apart, which is an aspect called a trine, which um, is there are two points on a equilateral triangle, and it's that's considered one of the most harmonious aspects. And so, in uh, when you're looking at two people's charts and you try to decide, you know, are these people going to get along? Trines oh. trines generally indicate two people who would get along well. And so they're, you're both in water signs. You're both. Um, Can I ask you about that? So is that because element, is that because under my elements there in the chart, um, water is the prominent one? Or is that something different? Well, water is the prominent element in your chart. Okay. But I, I'm, I'm speaking specifically of the sun sign. Okay. Okay. So the suns. Okay. And so Cancer and Pisces are both considered water signs. Okay. And they're very, they're very kind of intuitive, uh, psychic, kind of 
there's there's kind of a harmonious flow between like two people with water signs. So it's like you kind of like the whole tone of your show is very is very watery. It's very fluid and um, another thing that kind of you, that you both have in common is that your moon is in a sign ruled by Venus. Um, Graham, you have yours in Libra, and Darren, yours is in Taurus. And so, again, like where you guys are comfortable is when things are kind of harmonious and uh, there's just kind of this nice aesthetic flow to everything. And one thing that kind of shifts that a little bit is you both have Mars conjunct your sun, which gives you a bit of fire and a bit of energy and uh, like passion and determination, but it's still tempered by that water. Because once again, you both have Mars and water signs, which is actually, uh, according to Ptolemy, you know, and, and the ancient Greek astrologers, Mars was happiest in the water signs because there's a tendency of Mars to get kind of out of control, to get, you know, kind of a little too aggressive, but having Mars in a water sign tempers it, kind of calms it down, and so that you can put that energy to more productive use. Instead of, like, partying hard? Like, we both have histories of partying pretty hard. That could be yeah. something to do with it. I think over time, yeah, you can get that tempered, maturity and i've just noticed that in the way you guys communicate you know there isn't a lot of aggression you know there's no shouting or talking over people it's very you're very passive aggressive i don't know i don't know about the talking <laughs> over but i would agree there's no shouting <laughs> yeah you're not yelling over people yeah yeah interesting yeah. Like Alex Jones. Right. You don't, you're not Alex Jones or uh, Bill O'Reilly or anybody like that. Who's Bill O'Reilly? Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, he's a. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to know. You yeah, don't exactly. know. Exactly. You don't want to know. Lucky. <laughs> so those are, those are like a few similarities that I think that make kind of your uh, make you a successful duo in your in your hosting and you both also have uh, like interesting placements of mercury that kind of where Graham has mercury like right there on his ascendant which is like it makes it like three times as strong as you know it would be otherwise so that means you're just a natural talker like you're you're a communicator like you but once again with all this you know wateriness like cancer and uh your moon it's a very smooth very like you're comfortable when other people are comfortable so you tr you're kind of this peacemaker this you're trying to balance things out in your communications so that everyone else kind of feels comfortable with the conversation. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's pretty, pretty good. Cause yeah. the moon, the moon represents where you're comfortable in, like where you find like you're kind of at ease and having it in the third house, the house of communications and kind of day-to-day -day interactions 
in Libra, which is the balances, the scales, like you need harmony, you need balance, you need kind of this, uh, this peaceful setting in order for you to feel comfortable. And where, where do you most often express that is through your communication and through the way you interact with people. Wow, that makes sense. And then... Sounds like Graham. Yeah. Yeah. And then Darren, you have your Mercury up in Aquarius in the 10th house. So you're very technically minded. You're very... Uh, your communication style is somewhat more uh, on the analytical side. So it's kind of... Like Mercury is, there's a certain genius to it where it's like, you, you can't get something past a Mercury Aquarius. Where it's like, you know, they, they sniff the bullshit and like, they see it coming and that, like, they, they're just not going to take it. And it's up there in the 10th house, which means that you are going to take this analytical, uh, tech-savvy like, way of uh, communicating and way of uh, understanding the world and you are going to put it out there. Like, this is your way of connecting with the wider world. The 10th house is the house of kind of your public face, like your, uh, your career, your reputation, your, your interaction with the wider world. And so doing something like a podcast is absolutely Mercury, Aquarius, 10th house type of thing. It's all about technology. It's about using the latest and the greatest, the, you know, cutting edge information and in technology. That and, sounds and, about right. Yeah, and the topics that you cover. I Which mean should turn probably makes me less of a good communicator. It's no use I mean, I think that you would still be a good communicator. You just might be uh two steps <laughs> you might you might be two steps beyond everyone else. Oh! I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Usually, Graham at least. <laughs> uh, yeah. What's some of our big differences? Well, in what ways am I superior to Graham, <laughs> and vice versa? See, I don't know if I want to place a wedge between you but it's okay there's a there's already one here <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll communicate our way around it let's see i've been trying to phase ground for a couple of years now to no avail you haven't you haven't found a replacement yet no one day one day Graham's gonna come in the igloo with a shotgun and just start shooting the place oh, that's not nice <laughs> Well, one thing I, I, th I find interesting about uh, Darren's chart is that you were born during the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction back. Uh, they happen every 20 years. And that just, to me, a lot of people born under those uh, conjunctions are, they can pour themselves into these ideas of duty and like work. Um, particularly for you, Darren, you have it in your sixth house, which is the house of duty and work and kind of this like this understanding that you have this higher purpose and this higher uh, responsibility and that you need to do it. You need to get it done. And so 
that would be one thing that I would that I would point to in your chart, which I think is really an interesting. It's an interesting signature. I, I, I've been noticing people who have that recently. Hmm. Interesting. So, I do and, work too and, much. Huh? I said I do work too much. I would say so. Yeah. And when he's not working, he's working. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I would say one thing you need to do is, yeah, relax. Spend more time with the wife. <laughs> Spend more time with family and friends. That's, uh, sorry, I'm getting a little, a little on the, on the preachy side, but that's one thing I would notice in your chart. Hmm. Good to know. Make more time for friends and family. What's, what about Graham Balam? What about Graham? Ooh, he looks nervous. Oh, yeah? No, I don't. No. I think that one thing I noticed about Graham is that because you have all this cancer energy, like cancer can be a little bit uh, weary of taking risks, weary of uh, kind of putting yourself out on, on a ledge. And then having that Libra moon might make you a little too accommodating, a little too... So with your Mars and Mercury in Cancer, they're kind of... You need to put yourself out there more. Like, stand up for... like. There, there's something to be said about being harmonious and being, you know, making sure everybody feels comfortable in the conversation. But sometimes you need to just stand up for what, what you think, that you need to be firm in your convictions and just say, no, this is what I'm actually, what I think. And without equivocate or, you know, without some kind of qualification or, you know, wiggling your way out of it if you don't think that the other person agrees. Like, you need to, like, put your foot down and say, this is what I think. This is what I believe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Especially more in a work environment than the podcast, really. That's what I'm thinking. But. Yeah, just in general. Just in general. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. It does make sense. But Ground believes everything. I, shut up. <laughs> I'm going to put my foot down and tell you what the fuck's going on here. I, I've got a balanced opinion. I don't believe everything. Please do. Regardless of what you think. No, you're, you're willing to entertain both sides. That's that Libra. That I agree with. You're weighing everything out on the scales. I have a I have a, a Mexican piece of art that's called Justicia, and it's got like this chrome black sort of look, and it's a handmade piece of art, and it's got like the scales of justice with this lady holding them and the sword of ju and all that. Yeah, it's, so that makes sense. Yeah, you're you have Cancer rising, which makes the moon the ruler of your chart, and your moon is in Libra. So, like your association with the Lady Justice and her scales is apropos. Wow. That's interesting. Can I ask you about the chart uh, itself? Like my chart is, it's, I love the, the artwork of it. It's fascinating. Like I'm going to learn more about this for sure. So the, the center circle there has a bunch of connection, connecting lines going back and forth. And there's like an equilateral triangle going back and forth. And then some lines going from mm -hmm. nine to three. Is that anything significant like i like the aesthetics of the pattern for one thing but yes there's those are the aspects between two planets or two uh locations and they're all based on geometric 
uh, harmony. So it's like the sac- it's all, it's all sacred geometry. The, the trines, like I said, are the you know the points on an equilateral triangle, and those are considered to be the most harmonious, most easygoing aspects. And then the next ones are the ones uh, the sextiles. They're sixty degrees apart. They're the points on a on a hexagram. Okay. And, yeah. Oh, I see what's going on there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then there's the ninety degree angles, and those are considered to be uh, hard aspects. And so you see the red lines are the hard aspects. Yeah. And so that's the ninety degree ones, the squares, which is like those create this this tension. It's like this this great sense of disease between those two energies that needs to be worked out throughout your life. And then the, the oppositions, they're 180 degrees apart. Those are like these strong tensions, like they're pulling up against each other. And they, they need to be resolved. It's, the, old, it's the, the hermetic principle of polarity, where polarities are just opposites on, you know, just extremes on the same spectrum, and they need to be harmonized. And so for people who, you know, most people kind of fall into this pattern of struggle in those aspects, those hard aspects, the squares and oppositions. And for the oppositions in particular, and for like, for you, you have uh, an opposition between uh, Chiron and Uranus. And so... Again, it's kind of this fear of uh, it's kind of this tension between your need to be unique, your need to express yourself in a way that you know kind of goes against the grain, goes against what other people think, and your fear of being kind of rejected by them. Yeah, not accepted. Yeah, not accepted. Yeah, yeah. and so. That's just a, that's just a polarity that you're going to have to work out throughout your life constantly, and and it's and it's a tension. The third house and the ninth house. It's a third house. It's it's a tension between the, the philosophy that you believe and kind of your desire to have these harmonious day to day interactions. Yeah, and so yeah, that's interesting. So, hmm. what else is in there? What about what about um, all four of those uh, <clears throat> those things of mine lining up on the uh, like in the first and twelfth house there? Like you have uh, Mars, um, Mercury, ascendant, and the Sun all together there. Yeah, that's called a a stellium when you have three or four planets crammed together like that, and it. When you have conjunctions, which is an aspect I forgot about, it's a very powerful aspect, is that the, all those energies kind of blend together. So mm-hmm. like, you know, having Mercury and Mars together, you just say that's somebody who's very expressive and energetic in the way they communicate. And then you throw the sun in there, and that's just a very central part of the way they are, the way they, the way they act. And then you have that on the ascendant. The ascendant is how you present yourself to the, you know, to to the world around you and how so like all the energies of everything of all the other planets kind of get put through the ascendant the ascendant is how you appear to everyone else and so 
how do you appear to someone else, everyone else? Well, you have this, ex- this very energetic, expressive communication style, you know. But then again, it, because this is all happening in Cancer, it links back to your moon, the ruler of the sign of Cancer, which is in Libra in the third house, which once again, you're the peacemaker, the diplomat. You're trying to make everyone feel comfortable. And so you're expressive and very energetic in your communication, but it's very uh, diplomatic and very even-handed in the way you do it. Hmm. And so I hope that answered your question. Yeah, definitely. Whenever you see uh, a bunch of planets together like that, they're just all acting in unison. Which there's there's disagreement on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, because some people say that like each kind of loses their own identity, but then other you know you could think of it as they're all working together for a similar goal. So it's kind of. Hmm. Well, they seem pretty accurate anyway. That's for sure. Yeah. So where 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 do people go? Where do, what's the URL that people can track you down at? My my website is J Druitt Astrology, J D R U E T dot com. Um, my website is still under construction. There's really nothing there yet. Um, but they can contact me through you know through my email at J Astrology uh, at gmail dot com, or check me out on Twitter just at J Astrology and so I wanted to ask you about um how this how this works like i I've never really understood i mean I can kind of start thinking about how the uh you know the the cosmic basically is is it this cosmic situation that we're all born during different cosmic um cosmic uh how do I say it like like a cosmic situation kind of, or like things are, and that affects the way our makeup is like, how, how does the whole thing, how do if you were to speculate, how does the whole thing work or not the whole thing, but how do these traits be, or how do we become these traits when, is it because of the way things are when we're born? I kind of take it from a hermetic viewpoint, just the, 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 Principle of correspondence is, you know, as above, so below, that there's this set of symbols that, I mean, over thousands of years, this, this set of symbols has been developed, where it's basically just this complex system of synchronicities, where they see connections between you know, the personalities of, a, you know, of an individual and the positions of the planets in the heavens. Um, I don't think that it's, you know, just some scientific force that we can measure and that we'll, someday we'll find it, you know, some cosmic rays or some gravitational force or something that, you know, one day we'll have the meter that will, you know, pick it up. I just think that it's a system of correspondences, that if the universe is, is mind, if the universe is uh, consciousness, then there's 
these fractal patterns. There's these hol you know holographic patterns where uh, these universal principles in the heavens are imprinted on, on on individuals when they're brought into the world. And so hmm. that's the way I view it. And there's there's disagreement. There's a great deal of disagreement in the astrological community. What are some of the other sides? Well, some some people think that it is some sort of uh, and it, like gravitational energy or some sort of cosmic energy or whatever. Yeah, some some cosmic principle that you know some energy force that you know they haven't measured it yet. They don't know exactly how it works, but someday we'll we'll have the right machinery and we can detect it. And, and I don't know. I, I don't I don't agree with that. But, is there is there a reason why? Like, what what uh, is it? Just your sort of intuition, or have you had experiences that would tell you that uh, that's just not um, in your sort of belief structure? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it and say that I yeah. have some sort of inside knowledge that says that that's bogus. I just don't. I tend to not think so. Hmm. I, I tend to. I, I tend to view things from a more hermetic viewpoint that it is just this ancient system of, of symbolic uh, of symbolic figuring that it isn't based on anything specifically scientific. Is it, is it like we're predestined to have these traits then because of that symbology or are we creating the traits as we go because of our free will and the symbology, if you know what I mean? I think that, it's a little of both. I think that it, it's, and it is kind of this great debate on synchronicities themselves. Is there really something trying to communicate something to us, or is it just, or are we just trying to make sense of uh, coincidences? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I, I, I think that it is that we're predestined to have that. I th that I think, and this is this is the type of astrology that I practice is that. We have this this uh, this path that we are walking along, that we are going on, and it takes many, many lifetimes. And our birth chart is kind of the map. It's kind of this it's this this echo of where we've been, and kind of the snapshot of where we are, and kind of this this roadmap of where we need to go from here, like where we need to move forward. And so. I think there is a cosmic force that is, uh, you know, whether you, what do you want to call it, God or just you know, the supreme consciousness or whatever, is trying to communicate these things to us. Hmm, that's so. interesting. How, how's your feedback been from from your guests so far, or your clients so far? Has it been pretty good? Yeah, yeah, it's it's been. They've they've all been great, and I, I've had really good conversations with all of them really good readings and so yeah my feedback has been i don't want to speak for everybody because i mean they might <laughs> yeah yeah no <laughs> they might course, take, take objection to me saying that they were too great but yeah yeah so so what how does your process work so you've got this like i've got this great this chart in front of me and it's got a um a, a, like a legend with all the symbolism and stuff like that and then it's got the the 12 
12 houses there with where everything lines up and lines connecting it and everything. So do you, do you, do you do that chart for people and then have it in front of them and then go through it all with them and then, and then sort of do your reading that way? Yeah. As soon as I kind of, I, I get the contact from them, I try to, you know, get them to send me their birth information. Um, so that way I can write up their chart and send it to them. And then we can schedule a time to go over it. But I want them to be able to see it and look it over. And you know, if they know anything about astrology, and a lot of people have some experience, but not a lot. And so the more time they have to look it over and the more time they have to kind of understand the symbols, I think the better the conversation goes. And so, yeah. yeah and then, then they can ask questions about some of the trends they see in there, some of the exactly yeah exactly so then then i go into yeah i can go into some of the deeper stuff like the more uh introductory stuff we don't have to go over the better the you know the back end is the more we can go over some of the more in-depth stuff and how how does that look how how would it go like if you were to to continue with mine not that you have to in, in that detail but how does it get deeper into my my being I would look at things like the the north and south node. You see, they kind of look like the upwards and downwards oh, horseshoe. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Those are where the eclipses happen. Like when th those are the points in the sky where the sun and the path of the sun and the moon cross. It's kind of a hypothetical because like it's shifting all the time. So it's kind of like if you were to like shift the moon and the sun along their orbits to cross, those are where the eclipses would happen. And in evolutionary astrology, which I practice, the the idea is that the south node represents your past, where you've come from, mm -hmm. and the north node is your future, kind of where you're supposed to be going forward from here. Okay. And so then I would go into that story, and you know we'd bring in the rulers of them. So for you, it would be, uh, you know, Mercury is the ruler of your south node, and, and then for Pisces, where your north node is, it would be both Jupiter and Neptune. We'd look at both of them and kind of look at the story that they're telling. And that would kind of give you this direction for where you kind of karmically need to go over the next lifetime or so. And so. Is there, is there something uh, about mine being completely opposite to each other? They always are. That isn't, that is necessarily the case. Stop. Sorry, what was that? They always are. It's a oh, okay, okay. They, it's a the polarity. Okay, yeah. it's where the it's where the kind of like the idea of the the solar eclipse and the lunar eclipse, where like they could they would happen. Right on. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. I I'd like to do what I'd like to do is is uh, maybe just even one day just get into more detail, do like a full hour with you or something like that. Okay. Yeah, to see how awesome. we go. Uh, you know, to see how how it all ties in because it's pretty it's pretty comprehensive yeah. yeah i mean there's so much and honestly this looks like a really complex chart but i actually cut out tons of objects and points <laughs> and those are like only these are what they what are called the the ptolemaic aspects okay the uh the greek astrologer uh claudius ptolemy basically boiled it down to you know five aspects and he's like okay these are the most important because you could you know, in addition to having triangles, squares, and hexagrams, you could have, you know, pentagrams, heptagrams, 
you know, all kinds of different uh, things out there. You could have like, instead of just the 90 degree angle, you could have the 45 degree angles. And the, anyway, so there's tons of aspects right. and, and points as they're finding new asteroids and trans uh, Plutonian objects and huh. all kinds of weird stuff. So some yeah, charts, I mean, some astrologers, when they cast a chart, there's like 30 objects and all kinds of crazy like aspect lines. And so, hmm. yeah, it's interesting. So I'm going to, I'm going to put all this information in the show notes and, and we'll link to it. And anybody that's interested, obviously you can, you can do this long distance, right? Via, do you do it via Skype or anything like that? Oh yes. Yes. All my uh, readings are done through Skype. Okay, great. And so I you mean, do the chart up, you send it to him via email and then you can do it via Skype. Right. Okay, good. Huh. Right on, buddy. Well, we want to thank you uh, for coming on and, and doing this with us. Is there anything you else you me. is there anything else you want to mention before we uh, let you go? Uh, no, this was that was pretty pretty comprehensive. So yeah, thanks, man. So so we've got uh, on this episode we've got Randall Carlson, as we mentioned, and Edward Nightingale, and uh, their traveling crew here, which uh, some of the guys get a chance to to pipe in and ask some questions and, and talk about their trip. So that's coming up here. Um, thanks for listening and stay tuned. Thanks a lot, Joseph. All right, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem, buddy. Take care. Let's keep in touch. Okay. Definitely. Okay. I'll, and I'll let you know when the episode comes out. Actually, it should be pretty soon. I think this is the next episode out. So, okay. Thanks buddy. All right. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Okay, guys, in America tonight, we are catching back up with uh, Randall and Ed and Brian, George, Bill, and Brad on their way home now from their Rocky Mountain adventure. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to look at some pictures, and we figured we'd record it and uh, hear some more uh, Canadian history. Don't forget about Graham. Fuck Graham. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going? Not bad. So, yeah, we. I think I'm a bit loud there. You want to turn the... I think down I'm cracking the... Just don't wear your headphones. It's weird when you're the only one. I like to be the only one. So, so before <laughs> we... Because I want these mics to pick up background. Okay, before we miss too much of our conversation, we want to get get this thing recorded. So, we're talking about uh, your trip, and, your, and uh, you're explaining to me what drumlins were and stuff like that. So, Randall, you can uh, take it away here and tell us about a little bit about your trip and where we're going. Yeah, well, we learned how to talk like a Canuck. <laughs> no do to boot it. They've been working on it all week. <laughs> is that from that crazy guy you met in the middle of the wilderness? Or? Yeah. At the center of the universe. Oh, it's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you want me to talk about drumlins? You, you didn't say A.
Hey, yeah, yeah, that's a, a, that's a deal breaker. With I'm actually the reverting they, back to my uh, Minnesota. They'd call I'll you out right it. away without the A. <laughs> they would. They'd, yeah. they'd call me out, wouldn't they? Yeah, they'd hey? get you. They, you wouldn't get far with that. No, they'd call you out. Well, give me another week. Here, yeah. And I'll have, give me another week. Because I deliberately didn't. I could have fallen into that idiom. It didn't allow myself. It's fun sometimes to just fall into the local culture. I do it in Mexico. By the time I leave Mexico all the time, I've got like a little Spanish drawl going on. <laughs> You just get yourself in trouble on the beach with that one, buddy. Yeah, I do. <clears throat> well, you know, where I was raised in Minnesota, they talk very distinct from where I live now. In, in, down in Georgia? That's where I've been yeah. living for the last 20 years, and I've been living down in Georgia. That's where all you guys live, right? That's you don't really seem to have the southern accent that I'm Yeah, I'm but I, I grew up in Minnesota. Is that... <laughs> <laughs> now, now you're sounding like a native. <laughs> yeah, but in Minnesota, we don't see that's the point. We don't sound that much different over there in Minnesota from you guys out here. We just don't say hey as much. That's why you're good at hockey. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Big hockey. Almost town. as good as Canadians. Yeah. That's all we got is hockey. That's why we're so patriotic about it, because that's really all we got. You guys got bigger guns, bigger bombs, we, more we people. <laughs> yeah, but you guys got but bigger gremlins. We won the only. We won the only war. The only war. Let that go on the record. The yeah, only war between us. Which war was that? Eighteen twelve. Oh, that one. Oh, I forgot about that. Okay. <laughs> that was before your time, George. Yeah. Just. <laughs> okay. Hey, have you noticed how much more rugged George looks now after eight days out on the road? Scruffy beard and scruffy. Yeah, yeah, look at that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Randall said there's no razors allowed on these expeditions. So see, know. that's another hockey thing. That's what they do. You guys are like in the playoffs, <laughs> the geological playoffs here. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, you want to talk about drumlins? Yeah, because I, I was asking you these remember questions. Something and, about drumlins? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's one of the main things we were looking for. We didn't. I mean, we certainly were in amongst the drumlins, thousands and thousands of drumlins, but. The thing that I'm very taking away from this now is, is, I guess, a deeper realization of why they have gone unnoticed to a large extent up to this point. Because now we have digital elevation models that basically don't look at the trees and the vegetation. They look at the underlying topography. And that's where they show up quite strikingly. But when you're up there in the plateau region, everything's forested. So you don't really see them very well from the ground unless you get to a cleared space or a field or something then you might be able to see one and we've got some beautiful photos here of some of the drumlins and drumlinized landscapes that we encountered as we were traveling and, uh, and maybe you should explain to me what or us again what a drumlin is then well a drumlin is is a, a land form it's uh generally just a hill but it's it's a hill that has a very unique genesis Okay, now first let's talk about, you asked me earlier, what's, what's the uniformitarian or gradualist interpretation, so let's talk about that for just a second. Although, for the last more than, a, probably a century and a half anyway, the origin of drumlins has been a matter of controversy. Because within the gradualist framework, it's very difficult to explain drumlins. And in fact, I'll go further, it's impossible to, to explain drumlins if you're going to just only invoke uniformitarian or slow working or slow moving processes and that's one reason why they've had a difficult time coming to agreement on what exactly created drumlins but in the 1980s a group of canadian geologists geologists around uh john shaw who's right here out of calgary 
uh, began to look at drumlins with a new eye and realized that they were probably produced by water because they have all the characteristics of something that would be produced by water. And, and you see, that's what makes drumlins unique is their geometry. And it's the geometry that is formed when you have the minimum resistance to turbulent drag. What that means is you're trying to create a geometric form where the shear stress of the water moving past it is reduced to the absolute minimum, right? Now, this is why a boat hull is shaped aerodynamically, right, to move through the water, because you're, it's a fluid, just like air. So the yeah. same principles apply, right, of aerodynamics. And that's essentially what's happening here. It's, it's fluid dynamics that are shaping these hills of till. Now, let's pause for a minute and, and explain what till is. As the glaciers move over the ground, they grind up the ground. They break up the rock beneath. They, they crush pluck. everything flat like the prairies. They crush everything. And so glacial till is the stuff that's left over after the glaciers or the ice sheets retreat, and they're gone. And it can always be identified by just being a, a chaotic jumble of all kinds of stuff, of all different sizes, right? As opposed to something that's deposited by water, which has a very distinct architecture to it. You can look at the striations and the bedding and so on in it, that it has and determined that it was set down by water flowing, whereas with glacial till, that's not there. You see, that's the difference between the two. Now, what happens is the glacier comes across, creates this massive layer of till. Then what happens is you have a subglacial flood that comes passing underneath the, the, the glacier. Now, this is where the, this theory becomes controversial. It was first proposed in the 1980s. By Shaw, it, did anything happen to him? Anything bad? No, he's still around. I wonder if he got paid off because the local, Shaw's a big name locally. They own like all the cable. They're the local cable company. Well, I don't know if he has anything to do with that Shaw or not. I, I have no knowledge. I only know really about the man's work. Brad actually over there has met him. Um, oh, you've met him? I met him briefly. <clears throat> Uh, but you want to talk about it? You want us to take my spot? Here, well, sit no. here. Brad. Yeah, Brad uh, was on a field trip, and maybe you'd talk for a minute about the field trip, and then, then we'll come back to the drumlins. Well, I went out with the Geological Society of America uh, in 2009 and traveled with a group, uh, some that are the hardliners for uh, the Missoula flood being uh, from an ice dam there in the Clark Fork Valley in uh, Idaho-Montana border. Uh, but we also had some people traveling with us that were protégés of John Shaw. Uh, he was her sponsor uh, during her Ph.D. And uh, so she was in, in the van with me and uh, another guy that was uh, writing a paper with her because she was his sponsor. So the whole trip I got a uh, alternate viewpoints of all these landforms that we were seeing in Washington State around the Channel Scablands. So when we got back to the uh, convention in uh, Portland that year, she's like, "Well, you know, do you want to meet? You want to meet John? Sure, I, well, I know he's here. We'll, we'll bring him over." So um, I got introduced as an engineer, and my girlfriend who was with me as a designer, and uh, got to uh, just say hi to him briefly, and you know, told him we appreciated so much him being such a pioneer. And pointing some of these things out that we've gotten to travel the Okanagan Valley, which is some of his original work uh, uh, that really changed some of the definitions of, of what uh, geologists think drumlins are now. Uh, 
Uh, so that was one of the main purposes of our trip to go see these huge fields wow. uh, that are throughout central southern British Columbia. Very cool. Yeah, our, our, our first trip together here was actually in 1999. And we came up, our plan was to come up the Okanagan and look for evidence of massive water flows moving to the south. Because by that time, we'd already concluded that the channel scablands, or at least the western channel scablands, which could include Moses Cooley, Grand Cooley, and probably what's known as the Telford Scabland Tract, were actually created by water issuing down the Okanagan Valley rather than coming out of western Montana in the form of a draining Lake Missoula. See, So this is a big departure from 40 or 50 years or 60 years of conventional interpretation. See, So... Our, our purpose in coming in 99 was looking for evidence that, and, and we not only uh, traversed the Okanagan Valley, we also traversed the Columbia Valley up to its headwaters at Lake, lake Columbia. No, not Lake Columbia. What is the lake at the... At the North of Revelstoke there? What is that? Yeah. The head of that out. Lake Okanagan? Uh, no, the head of Columbia River. Oh, it's just Columbia Reach. Yeah, Columbia Reach. Okay, right. good. That's what I was looking for. That's what I was reaching for. Excuse me. The <laughs> reach. And that was about 100 miles north of where we were hanging out? Uh, it was south of Revelstoke. Oh, it's south of Revelstoke. Yeah, because we, yeah. we got on the bridges over the, the Columbia River. So, yeah, that was probably uh, 20, 30 miles down from Columbia Reach mm. or, or north of it, but downriver from it. Yeah, and then in addition to that, we did That's a— That's where my beer bottle is. <laughs> <laughs> it is now. As I was trying to say— uh, we also did a traverse up and down the Rocky Mountain Trench, or what the bottom, what three hundred miles, something like that, and and right. looking for evidence that, again that you see the Water Mount, Rocky Mountain Trench heads onto the northern reach of Flathead Lake in western Montana, which was considered to be where the uh, Flathead lobe of the Great Cordilleran Ice Sheet over British Columbia reached down into western Montana, and Flathead Lake is occupying the basin that was under there's a there's a big moraine at the south end of flathead lake um the polson moraine and that marks where the glacial lobe came down and basically stopped terminated and receded back up but we were also looking at that under the possibility that the rocky mountain trench was actually a conduit for the filling of lake missoula was that that other picture we're looking at with the sharp sides this is the this is part of the Rocky. This, now, this is a section of the Rocky Mountain Trench that we we did on this trip, and and actually, you can see that the floor of the trench there is drumlinite, which is again evidence that's consistent with what John Shaw was saying way back in the eighties that <clears throat> drumlins are the consequence of subglacial floods under high pressure. Now, the objection to that has generally boiled down to this. The scale of the drumlin fields are so vast over the North American continent, in the regions, mind you, where the glaciers existed, that it was always just assumed because of this association between the, re the geography of the glacial ice sheets and the, the location of the drumlins that the, that the glaciers were directly responsible for the creation of the drumlins. They were only indirectly responsible in the sense that they created this lid that the kept pressure. this... Exactly, the pressure. That, because that's the key ingredient here is the pressure. If there's a free surface, it doesn't create drumlins. Yeah, so, so basically it's like an underground river. It's like an underground river. Right? Sure. Only the overlying rock it's is ice. ice. You got yeah. the picture exactly. Now, the objection to Shaw's theory was that 
the scale of the floods required to produce these vast drumlin fields was so great that there could have been no source for such volumes of water. Other than an impact. Well, nobody said an impact. Nobody was thinking impact. Did Shaw ever get to that? Or no? I don't know. Did he stopped short of that? I don't know. I'd like to know. have a discussion with him about it, though. Is he still around? I don't know that for sure. Possibly not. What's his name? John Shaw. Yeah, he, he'll emerge as one of the heroes in this whole... He had an illness at the time, and that was that was 2009, so I'm not sure how he's recovered after that. And they don't recognize that because they didn't think that it would warm up that fast? As well, well, no, they the just flood, they basically said, because Shaw himself and his, his colleagues have said, have, have invoked in sort of a vague way a reservoir, either subglacial, which means a giant <clears throat> subglacial body of water, and possibly have cited, have, have pointed to the existence of such large bodies of water under the Antarctic ice sheet at the South Pole today. But there's a difference here, though. The main difference is that those subglacial lakes down in Antarctica are in topographic lows. They're in topographic depressions. In other words, take the ice sheet away. They're not being contained by the ice sheet. Take the ice sheet away, and they're, they're, they're going to sit there, right? These are different because they're now requiring retention by the ice itself and the critics are pointing out that you you couldn't have a, a volume of water that great like the the um one of the one of the floods in ontario that swept down over the dakotas in north america which was called the livingstone lake event the living john shaw's still alive and teaching still going Wow, good news. Good, yeah, okay. absolutely. I wonder if we could get him in studio. We should have got him down here tonight <laughs> for some wine. No. <laughs> How old must that he would, be then? That would be a powwow we'd come back for. When did he? He must be a... No, well, maybe late 70s. Yeah, I was thinking he might be 80 now. Maybe. Okay, anyways, one of his main scenarios that he created was he was called the Livingstone Lake Event. And basically, the Livingstone Lake Event required 84,000 cubic kilometers of water to accomplish the movement, the mass movement of material that's implied by these drumlin fields over Manitoba and Ontario. So then the critics said, well, there's no way. There's, there's no way. You can't, you know, is it subglacial, meaning under the ice? Is it supraglacial, meaning on top of the ice? Is it n-glacial, meaning within the ice? Every one of those storage pro storage models has severe problems to it <clears throat> and that's where the critics have said because you don't you have no means of storing that much water those floods didn't happen very much in the same way that way back in the 1920s and 30s the critics of j harlan bretts were saying well because you can't account for a flood of water great enough to create the channel scab lands the way you describe them then that flood didn't happen See, until it came along and somebody said, oh, well, there was this big glacially ice-dammed lake in western Montana uh, blocked by this lobe of ice that came down in northern Idaho. And then it backed up the water, well, as it turns out, over 2,000 feet deep, which I have maintained for years now is an impossibility. So what's your answer to the? Well, to that? it goes back to, to Brett's original idea was that there was a, <clears throat> a sudden and inexplicably rapid melting of the Cordilleran ice sheet. Mm -hmm. and, but his critics said, no, there's no way to do that, so therefore the flood didn't happen. In the same way that the critics of John Shaw are saying, well, there's no way to uh, store that 
great of a reservoir of water. Therefore, the drumlins weren't created by water. We have to go back to figuring out somehow how they were created direct by direct glacial action. See, however, now with an impact or multiple impacts into the ice sheet, we don't need a, a storage reservoir anymore because it's an instantaneous release of ice. I mean, an instantaneous release of water, an instantaneous melting. Depending on the size and the velocity of the object, one can calculate how many calories of energy would be injected into the ice by an impact of, an, say, an object a half a kilometer to a kilometer in diameter, moving it, say, you know, 20 or 30,000 miles an hour. You know, so when something like that happens, there's a tremendous amount of energy released in an event like that. And, and I think only an event like that could provide the copious amounts of water that have created these landscapes, these drumlinized landscapes, these eroded landscapes, such as we see in the channel scab lands of, of Washington state, to have created, to have filled these massive lake basins. Because a lot of these lakes that we were looking at right here in British Columbia over this last uh, 10 days uh, were as much as a thousand feet deeper at one point. Now, how do you explain that? Well, it's because you had so much ice piled up over this part of the world, you know, a mile thick. Just over, drove it down. Just drove it down. And then, but see, then you've got all this melting. And the melting seemed to have occurred in, in several different kinds of phases. There was sudden, catastrophic, destructive melting of the ice sheet on a, on a huge scale. Then in the, in the aftermath of that, what you had was huge masses of dead, stagnant ice sitting on the plateau tops, sitting in the, in, the, in the valleys, and plus you had huge amounts of residual meltwater still left over. Now, at this point, yes, you did have ice dams, but those ice dams, of course, gave way eventually because over the next thousand years or so, because whatever caused that crash that shifted us, this, the planet out of the ice age did it did so very catastrophically okay and in the aftermath of that the, the whole planet began to warm after the the younger dryas which we've talked about and which is you know covered extensively in in graham's new book that's coming out he goes into that extensively and so anybody who wants a further uh discussion about all of this and also a really excellent He's included an excellent biography of Brett's and the whole controversy about the Missoula flood and the Channel Scablands. It's, it's very good. When does that come out? Should be out. So that's, fall. that's Graham Hancock's new book, Magicians of the Gods, yes. is set for U.S. release on November 10. November 10th. In yes. the, U in the U.K. In the U.K. on oh, September 10. You contributed four chapters? Or? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I contributed two four chapters of the book by... And so did Brad. We, we, like, took, yeah. we took two weeks and traveled from Portland over to Minneapolis to the Paradigm Conference with Graham. That's right. Showing him the whole, that's right, showing him the whole lower margin of the, the Cordillera and Laurentide ice sheets coming down in the U.S. and the just massive channels that are in, in all directions uh, across Montana, the plains, uh, South Dakota, and down into uh, Missouri. Uh, so so yeah, he's got several books, several chapters in his book discussing uh, that that very trip and uh, the knowledge that Randall gave him along the way. Wow! What because, about this picture? Okay, this picture is what's known as the chasm, and it's this. We're looking down. We're looking south here, down the chasm, standing right on the the head of the thing. That's fucking crazy. Yeah, and, and here's what you got to picture, and I, I almost need two hands to this. But what you've got is you've got 
after this event, and you have this tremendous amount of meltwater, right? Now, some of it is shooting over the top of the ice sheet, right? Because that's going to provide the least resistance to any yeah. kind of flow and discharge of this, of this overabundance uh, of water. Okay, a second amount of water is going to go, is going to access the base of the ice sheet because in an impact scenario, you're going to have a tremendous shock wave, seismic wave that's going to be transferred into the crust. It's going to emanate outwards also from the epicenter. This is going to facilitate the uncoupling or decoupling of the ice sheet from the ground below it, facilitating passage of, of a very large amount of meltwater that's essentially going to be the backwash into the crater that has been formed in the ice by the impact. So now what happens is emanating away from the point of impact, you've got sheet flows. The water is just there's, it's so copious that, that it, the entire zone under the ice sheet is just one continuous layer of highly pressurized water shooting outwards away from the point of impact. Now, as it gets uh, some distance away, say maybe a hundred, a couple of hundred kilometers or, or miles, somewhere in that range, what happens is, is the water begins to exploit weaknesses in the crust of the earth. So like, let's say there's a fracture or fault line in the crust there or a, a, some kind of pre-existing eroded smaller valley. What the water does then is it, go, it, it channelizes, it progressively channelizes. So this water shooting out, if you look around, immediately around the point of impact, you're going to have sheets. But then as it moves away from the point of in, impact, those sheets, that sheet of water becomes channelized. And once it becomes channelized, it starts down cutting a channel. And now what that does is capture all of the water that's now funneled into it, see? And that's what we're, we're seeing in this picture. We're standing at the head of this thing, looking south. We're standing right at the cataract head. So that would have been like... Uh... And anybody can see this on Google Earth. If you put in uh, the chasm, BC, bring it up on Google Earth. That would have and been like to... a sliver of ice that was depressed into the ground that just became kind of the path of least resistance or just... No, there was probably a pre-existing, weaker, a, a weaker, a zone of weaker rock in some cases. something older that had filled up with sediment or just anything. Any, sure. Any, it could have started, I guess it could have started, it could have only been couple of feet or you know a couple of meters but See, as soon as the water had some place to go as soon as you've got this high, highly rushing turbulent highly erosive water moving in there it's going to very quickly begin to erode and, it, and if the supply of water is sustained over a period of days or weeks pretty soon you're going to end up with what you're seeing right shear here walls. Yeah, shear walls exactly shear walls and what's there now is a three foot lot wide little creek that had that uh, coming yeah. up at the top at the head of the canyon that you know time, yeah that had nothing to do with the formation yeah, of that. Every time you drive to Okotoks, you drive through that Bow River Valley there, mm -hmm. and it's the exact same thing. There's that little tiny river in the middle of it of this giant fucking canyon under underfit stream. Yeah, that's what Drum Heller is too. It's almost like they try to tell you that it was just this little. I mean, it's a decent river. It's like maybe all the erosion. It's twenty or thirty feet across, and maybe like five, six feet deep, or it's got a little deeper yeah. pockets, but okay. it's nothing that impressive to have made this canyon and drove all these fucking dinosaur bones into one spot and piled them up there. And Did you hear what Brad said? He gave you the, the technique, the term for that. What's that, sorry? Underfit stream. Underfit stream. That's the geomorphologist's term. <laughs> That makes sense. What's that I think, mean? And you can, you can see, is... you can see it. Uh, we've got some spectacular examples on the Snake River down in southern Idaho. Uh, but you have a, you have a small 
river uh, or it could be a large river but it's in a channel that's uh just a small proportion of the wider channel that you can see where there used to be a much more voluminous river you know maybe short term uh but what's there now is just a fraction I mean, of the I size of that channel. The Grand Canyon is kind of like the ultimate example of that, right? Not and everything exactly, else has had something different. Not exactly. Grand Canyon's a little different. Grand Canyon, I don't know if we should digress into Grand Canyon. It is a little different, though. And I, I think Grand Canyon most definitely displays uh, effects of catastrophic flooding. But at the same time, it also displays effects of, of a long-term erosional process which I would estimate to be about two and a half million years since okay. the uplift of the Colorado Plateau. And I think most of the up, uh, most of the erosion probably takes place during episodes of accelerated erosion that coincide with the climate changes between glacial ages and interglacial ages and back again. Because we can see, in fact, there's a lot of evidence emerging that, that the bulk of geomorphic change or landscape change is actually taking place in these concentrated episodes and those concentrated episodes correlate with the transitions of the planet into and out of these widely divergent climate regimes these Hmm. widely changing uh catastrophic environmental changes that have gone on regularly i mean in the last two and a half million years the time that essentially defines the pleistocene have probably been two dozen glacial interglacial cycles and but the thing is that the, the effects of one cycle are so severe that they tend to obscure or erase the effects of the earlier ones, which makes it hard to decipher. But a lot of guys have worked on that and uh, mm. and can and present present definitive evidence that there have been multiple ice ages that have come and gone. But this last one, the 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 termination of it seems to have been more severe than any of the previous ones that have been documented at this point. And faster. Because it was so, extreme. and we, I guess we can we benefited from that really. Otherwise, would we be would would do you think civilization as we know it today would be pushed back a couple of thousand years without those impacts? Um, or do you think, would our or, we'd, we'd still do you be think, battling some big animals? Or do you think it was, <laughs> they weren't wiped out? You know, or do you think it would be better off? Or do you think because I mean, there's a lot of evidence that supports that that impact maybe drowned a lot of cities, right? Still be like Clan of the Cave Bear. Well, it depends on what you mean by cities. And now we're going to get into some... Or ancient civilization. Ancient civilization. See, yeah, and, 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 I, and I think that that's one of the implications of this, is that once you, once you begin to really grasp the nature of the catastrophic model of Earth change, then it becomes really impossible to, to just knee-jerk deny that there could have been sophisticated civilizations in the past. Because, uh, you know, it just depends on how we define what we mean by an advanced civilization. Because, I mean, I think I can come up, and I think a lot of people could come up with some scenarios of what might be an advanced civilization um, (coughs) that are quite a bit different than what we have. have Exactly. Now, if you read, and we were talking, we've been talking about this the last couple of days a a bit. If If you actually read Plato and read his account of Atlantis, which is regrettably one of the subject matters that has been so contaminated by you know, speculation and, and new age fantasies and so on that it's hard to even talk about Atlantis anymore in any kind of a serious vein. So I usually just say, let's talk about Plato and what he actually wrote in Critias and Timaeus about the subject of Atlantis, right? But what he describes there without crystals and flying machines and teleportation and no aliens or anything, what he describes is an advanced maritime civilization 
located in a, in a group of islands in the mid-Atlantic Ocean. And what he describes does sound um, quite sophisticated and advanced, but only in the sense that we might imagine, say, the Phoenicians um, for at one time had a pretty sophisticated civilization with uh, a, you know, highly developed navigational skills and shipbuilding skills and, and engaged in, in uh, you know, international commerce of some extent. And Plato describes a civilization there that was engaged in uh, trading, tremendous. In fact, he describes the, the harbors that were, that existed uh, on these islands and, and how, uh, how active they were with, with traffic, ship traffic in and out, carrying goods from around the world. Now, see, if you look at something like that, rather, and you get rid of all of this, the silliness with the other stuff, okay, what you're left with is a plausible situation. And then if you go look at the details of what Plato said, there's nothing there that's implausible from a scientific standpoint. Well, just recently they came up with that, another megalith uh, that rewrites history, right? Come the one in France? They, they, no, off the coast of Sicily, I think. Oh, Italy. So they're saying that it's... Uh, like he was there before the ice age, like under underwater. So it's, well, it's well, starting, look, to, it's look, starting there, to be. There's we we know that the sea levels. If we if we don't talk about anything else, we know the sea levels were nearly four hundred feet lower during the peak of the ice age. What does that imply in terms of land mass exposed by the lowered sea level? It means that islands around the world are bigger, peninsulas are wider. It means that the continental shelves around all of the continents are exposed, and there's all kind, there's millions of square miles of additional habitable real estate during the Ice Age, which is interesting because that compensates for the roughly six or seven million square miles of real estate that's lost to the glacial ice. You see, because during the Ice Age, you guys wouldn't have been living here. I can tell you that much because, you know, at one point you would have been under hundreds of feet of ice. I don't know whether, see, What's interesting about right here in Calgary is this is that really dynamic place where the great Laurentide ice sheet from the east met the great Cordilleran ice sheet from the west, and the two sort of battled for supremacy for a while. And um, it's not clear at all who and when America came out on top. There's there's some uh, there's Nose Hill Park is north of uh, Calgary. I wanted to ask you guys about that, but there's some big boulders up there that are sort of like halfway up the hill or at the top of the hill, and that's kind of like the highest point around here besides the mountains and i cool wonder if that's about, right where they the ice sheets were probably they left those boulders there i bet the cool thing about nose hill is that was just some old rich dude right he just left it to us he left it to the city of calgary on the condition that no one could ever build a house on it wow really it's always just got to be a reserve see so darren don't be so hard on the old rich guys <laughs> because if I have my way, I'm not as hard listen, on as Graham is. If I have my way, I'm going to end up an old rich guy. Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> All right. So you won't be too hard on me if I. No, no. Oh, okay. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. So where did you guys head after the chasm? We'll hit you up at the alumni donation. Uh... <laughs> oh, oh, okay. So your your motives are strictly mercenary. Mercenary. Hitting me up for what? Donation. We'll hit you up for don uh, alumni donations. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. You might not understand what I meant, but I'm sure your listeners will. Out. <laughs> <laughs> so Graham just asked, where did we go next? Um, like the mushroom. Oh, you got some well, yeah, was, nice pictures. It was before there. that. I don't know what you've got pictures of. Uh, up is that to a magic mushroom? It's almost the season, isn't it? Or is it? I think it's fall, isn't fall? it? almost fall it's canada it's almost fall it feels like winter today 
You guys could have went shroom picking while you're out there. That was up to Brian. Maybe you did. He was out on our, our locator. Well, so, so we yeah. had we had a lot of big meltwater channels. We saw, you know, we confirmed that, yeah, this, this one of the things I wanted to accomplish from this was to get a better and clearer picture of this process of outward movement of the water. And, and I said, oh, and look at this. After 20 extra years of research, mm-hmm. I guess, because last time we were out here was almost 20 years ago. 1999. Yeah, so just 16 years. Yeah. Right. Now that's a terrace there. See that flat, strikingly flat piece of ground that that's, looks almost artificially flat? It's not. It's, that's nature. And that is a fluvial terrace. What makes that? <clears throat> okay, well, I see Graham is diligently making notes here. <clears throat> well, I could illustrate with a diagram. It's tough to explain, but... That, that's on our way up from Williams Lake. On uh, the Fraser River, right there, wasn't it? Yeah. What you got a picture is that the water is moving through this channel. Now, if you look, go look at a normal river, if it's clear, the water's clear. It's not contain. It doesn't contain much sediment, does it? If the water's muddy, it contains a lot of sediment. Yeah. Okay. Well, now in this case, it's beyond muddy. It's loaded. The, the, this is people and. I mean, really what you're looking at here is almost borderline mud flow. I mean, it's so thick with sediment. And in that sediment are rocks and boulders and gravel of all sizes. There'd be slush too, kind of, right? Slush, yeah, yeah. Okay, now that water is flowing in here. Now picture this. Finally, at some point, the source of this flood water terminates. And at that point, the floods begin to subside. They lose this, this driving force of this the source reservoir of water, the source of all of this flood water has been drained. And so now the pressure begins to subside, right? And so as it does, it loses its competency to carry the sediment. And so it begins to lay it down in the bottom of the channel. Now the flood finally flows away and there's a flat bottom to this channel. Now in this case, the modern Fraser River over the last 10 or 12,000 years has flowed across this unconsolidated alluvium got it it's been laid down on the bottom of this channel because it's still soft and fresh it's easily eroded so it cuts a channel an inner channel within the greater channel you see this is a smaller version of this whole thing here so the modern river is flowing down here you can't actually see it behind the trees but it's down there and there's a matching terrace. That's like an Alberta theme, it seems like, or even like a Western Canada theme. It seems like all those rivers are at the bottom. If you take a step back and look at like all the rivers out west, it's always like the same scenario. Do they have that alluvial terrace? Not in that, Alabama? but just the small little river that you can't even see when you're looking at the big <clears throat> gorge. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. and now you're beginning to understand the scale of this thing that we're talking yeah. about. Because all those rivers were formed in the same way. So we're talking about floods here that really, literally, and probably were, at the same time. Yes, at the same time and continental in scope, mm. if not greater. Wow. Is there anything like this over in Europe or Russia? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So it would have been the whole northern hemisphere almost. But there's all. It's also in this South America. It's also, I'll tell you, there's only the places that seem to have been drastically and severely affected by this are greater than the places that weren't 
And the places that weren't appear to be like the, the mid, the equatorial regions of Africa, particularly around the rift zone. Because what we see, if we, looked at, if we look at the extinction of species as a consequence of habitat destruction, where do we find the greatest extinction of species? North America. South America, a very close second. Eurasia, hmm, about half of the loss of species that North and South America experienced. But then we get to Africa, and Africa lost only about 10% of its Pleistocene megafauna. North America lost three-quarters of its Pleistocene megafauna. The, 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 the mammoths, the woolly mammoths, the Colombian mammoths. Um, sloth. The, slo- the giant ground sloths of different species. There was the Jefferson ground sloth. There was several others, the, the several, several species of giant bear, or, uh, the giant short-faced bear, the cave bear. There was a giant uh, Pleistocene lion that was nearly the size of a horse. There were giant beavers. In, there, there were camels in North America. Huge numbers of camels r- ranging around. Saber-toothed cats, di- dire wolves. The list goes on and on and on. In a very short interval of time, right at the land of the last ice age, it, when, in fact, all of this stuff we're talking about and looking at here was going on, all those animals became extinct. Wow. So North America lost three-quarters of its great megafauna, and Africa lost about 10%. Now, if the loss of megafauna is a consequence of habitat destruction, as I believe it logically is, then which area suffered the least habitat destruction? It would have been the equatorial regions of Africa, where we see, in fact, dispersal patterns uh, almost repeatedly through even hominid history. What about Australia? Australia took a big hit, but Australia's hit was much earlier, like perhaps 30,000 years ago. In fact, I think that, that, that the, the numbers on Australia are still being worked out. But Australia has suffered a major uh, megafauna loss. But it appears that it's earlier. I suspect that it might actually occur coincident in time with the onset of the last great phase of glaciation in North America, which was between 26 and 30,000 years ago. Because if we go back 30,000 years ago, the ice sheets, if they exist at all, are massively diminished from what they were at the peak, say between fifteen and 20,000 years ago. So do you think without the impact, was it still going in the other direction? I think without the impact, we'd probably we'd still... snowball? We'd, no, we wouldn't be snowballed, because I think there are other mechanisms. Though. But we would be going that direction still, do you think? Well, there's no reason why the Ice Age couldn't have lasted another 10,000 years. Which is almost right now, or a couple yeah. thousand years. There's ago. no reason why the Ice Age couldn't still be going on. But that's part of the mystery, is why once an Ice Age, in fact, gets started, why does it end? I like to think that the biblical flood almost would have went right over top of the igloo, where it started. <laughs> the igloo. This is the igloo. Oh, this is the igloo. The igloo. <laughs> so what's that picture of there, Brian? That's like a perfect circle. George is a very good student. It's a kettle. It could be a lake, but in this case, it looks like it's a it's a, an ephemeral lake, meaning that probably it, whenever you have major periods of rainfall, it turns into a pond and then dries up. But that's a kettle, and it can form. Basically, it's formed by the combination of glacial till and iceberg. Now, in some cases, the iceberg might be underneath the material. Right? Like this big wash of material comes down. The material that you saw from that terrace that we looked at in the previous slide, 
that material can be three, four, five hundred feet thick sometimes, right? In in the bigger, thicker terraces. So there could have been a hundred feet of material. In fact, what we see is a, a drumlinoid feature right here, see? But what this was, there was an iceberg sitting, and it may have been partially buried or completely buried. But if it was completely buried, what happens is once it melts away, then the, the till, the material, collapses down into the depression left by the ice that was there that melted. Or it could have been partially melted, and it in effect has the same thing. But in any case, right, you see that's a kettle. So what it shows us there is that that was where a big chunk of residual ice sat there and then melted away over a period. Of and when you find that in association with the drumlin, see, that's all part of this process. What we're doing here is very much like, I don't know, maybe forensic work. It's detective work. It's like yeah. forensic geology. Forensic geology. That's, that's you guys a good should way have to a TV at. show. This is more exciting than goats. In the works. <laughs> is it? <laughs> we hope so. Well, what I would like to do is see, you know, bring, bring the production, uh, you know, abilities. Uh, to bear to recreate these events and show yeah that's what i was actually thinking almost like a scale model could you is it would it be possible to do it like non-computerized just by like i don't know oh shoot, yeah i mean you shoot, could build like, it would you do it with a gun would you shoot some fucking ice like put some ice on top of some dirt with some what like myth buffers <laughs> they've tried that with high <laughs> speed guns the opening cut <laughs> like myth buster style yeah well, I've fantasized about building the Missoula uh, floodland. You know, maybe abstracting it, simplifying it a bit, but showing the implausibility of the current models. Um, the, 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 the multiple floods over three or 4,000 years caused by collapsing ice dams. But that would be to disprove? Well, it would, yeah, it would, I think it would, what it would do is demonstrate that there are difficulties with that, with that model. Um, and that gets into some technical stuff that we can talk about, but you got to get Mythbusters to do it. They'll <laughs> use their budget. <laughs> well, I'm thinking, you know, a 250 million dollar Hollywood blockbuster movie to show what happened to this world 13,000 years ago that ended one world age and launched another one. Because that's really the story. And there still would be a personal effect they could add to the movie too. There was people. There was absolutely there was people. In North America, there was the Clovis culture, a very interesting group of people, and obviously very smart people. And then, you know, you bring in the, um, some of the ideas of Plato. You've got the makings of a hell of a story. But to show, to show, because people don't, you know, I mean, when people cross these landscapes, they look at it's just an outcrop of rock, it's a hill, it's a valley. They don't understand that, it's, that all of these things are telling this story and it's one hell of an epic story and it's probably the greatest thing that's happened the most powerful event that the human species has ever been engaged in since we've been on this planet huh. beautiful pictures brian so so this is uh where are we at now we're almost up to prince george on your we're journey this our security detail. Who's that with the glasses back there? That's well, that's our security man. So anybody who tries to interfere with us, or or you know, wild animals, did he follow you here to the igloo? He's sitting outside. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Shut it exactly. down. Exactly. Right. 
made several appearances. I bet you, you and you and you drove through Interior BC. I bet you there was fucking pot growers shit in our bridges all over the place. Yeah, we created a couple of sweaty people along the way. Yeah, it's like the pot Down a dirt road pull into a gas station, and they they go opposite yeah, right. way. We got to take a long fun. way around this restaurant. Yeah. yeah, a black suburban driving down the dirt roads with mm-hmm. Brian yeah. in his sh- or Brad in his shade. Yeah. <laughs> Holy fuck, holy fuck. Burn it. Well, that's why the guy at the center of the universe was kind of reluctant to uh, even open his gate to let us turn around. Oh, it's Icelandic pony there. Ooh, what river is that? Right after. That's where the big rock came from? The genesis most likely, of that? That's its most likely source. I think uh, the similar rock has been identified on Mount Edith Cavell, but I think that uh, Mount Robson is the most likely source at this point. For one thing, it would have had the most exposure above the ice. In the event of some kind of a cataclysmic disruptive event, um, Robson would have provided... uh, Anything under the ice probably would have been destroyed. Well, anything above the ice, because if you've got an impact coming in, um, you know, it may have actually impacted the mountain. Want to be swimming in there? Uh-huh. No, I told you. Yeah, I wanted to. Well, wouldn't Did I? Yeah. <laughs> this would be a memory of George. But as we look at some of these, I want you to notice them. Notice how this is curved, and then the curvature is picked up here. That's from turbulence on a large scale. I think we've got some more. Don't we have some more potholes coming up? Oh, yeah. Well, who's got a list of the the falls? We went to half a dozen of them. But the large potholes that we're talking about here were actually created by, you know, water flows much greater. Here's a remnant pothole right over here. You see, it's no longer being affected by the, the modern scale of the river. I'm sure, I'm sure that in spring floods, when this thing overtops its banks, yes, then it is. But it was originally created when the water depth was way over this. And moving way even faster. And moving even faster, yeah. Oh, look at that. Yeah, there that's, is. Can, that's made by water. Sure. Yeah. Wow. Is that a footprint? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the heel. Looks like a heel. <laughs> of a Nephilim. That's actually a Nephilim. <laughs> big toe. That's yeah. the big yeah, toe. Uh-huh. The... Didn't fish there? Yep. Seemed like the perfect place. So we traveled no, the, no. along the Fraser River a long way. We followed along the Athabasca River. Oh, there's a fish right there. Yeah. The spawning right? salmon. Yeah. Oh, what are they? Salmon? It's the Chinook. Chinook salmon. Chinook Chinook salmon. salmon. It would have been worse than the line <laughs> if we did anything. Yeah. So that was up in, uh, up that's up in Valemount. Valemount. Any bears? We saw one bear across the road, just lumbered across the road. I've never even been up there. Yeah, we should do it's it nice. one day. That's a nice little town, definitely. Yeah, pretty cool. I get the new camper, I'll go up, go tour with the kids, take a week off. Yeah, the camper. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, just hang out. out. That... This, this came into the motel room. Gray? Okay. Well, that's the one we were out in the parking lot looking for the Perseids, and, and the cat walks up in the parking lot and starts, you know, checking out the sky with us and then followed us into our room. So did you see any uh, meteor showers? There's more to that stuff. Yeah, yeah, about a half dozen or, or more. Uh, well, half of us saw one that was really, you know, quite powerful. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> did you have to stay up in the middle of the night for that then? Or? No, that was probably just after midnight. Oh, that's not bad. No. So what was the highlight up there around Mount Robson and, and Jasper? Like, is there any favorites? All the waterfalls? Is that what was sort that of was the most yeah, scenic? And Mount Robson itself. Mm -hmm. yeah, but, but getting to see the rivers that are, you know, becoming more familiar with British Columbia's rivers. Awesome trip. Coming down the, the Rocky Mountain Trench also and getting the scale of that, you see, you see the... Uh, Google Earth images, you know, looking at these things from from far overhead, but then when you're driving down in it, you, you know, you recognize uh, how huge that really is, and and it's one of many that were conduits for the ice, and then you know the resultant meltwater afterward. So um, the Rocky Mountain Trench is is the drive down from <clears throat> from Prince George or Jasper. Um, it, it's Prince George gets into the trench and it goes down to Valmont and then there's no roads through there. The trench. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. splits off. Right, right. Uh, but it ends up, you know, I thought maybe Randall could get back to that too, also talking about the drumlins down in the Rocky Mountain Trench mm. uh, and actually filling up Lake Missoula from there, uh, you know, which is definitely an alternative to the theories that have been around for 50 years. Yes, yeah, so if you scroll down here. Is and, that a and giant you drumlin? No, that's far in the distance, yeah. Right, yeah. And the thumbnail yeah, looks like yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, there weren't gremlins. That's a drumlin. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so you're going. talking about the bottom of yeah, the Yeah, you see, the, the, see the trench comes down, down here, and there's the bottom of it. Right, and it right. opens up yeah. into the Mission Valley okay. right here. Yeah. And at the very bottom of the trench, it's occupied by Flathead Lake. Yeah. And at the, at the south end of Flathead Lake is the Poults and Moraine, which was the glacial till, the debris that was shoveled up, in effect, by the glacier and then left there in a big mound, three, four, five hundred feet high, uh, as it receded back north. And you can actually see it if you go to the digital elevation model of this. Um, but so, one of the ideas is that the Rocky Mountain Trench. All of this came down here and was the supply, meltwater supply conduit um, for Lake Missoula, which, uh, whose northern basin was the Mission Valley. Mm -hmm. That makes sense? So this was the northern basin of mm -hmm. Lake Missoula right mm -hmm. here. And then this was the southernmost basin here, the Bitterroot Valley. Mm -hmm. This was the southernmost basin. And the lake, it is believed, drained out the valley of the Clark Fork River here, but was retained by an ice lobe, a tongue of ice that filled this area, now occupied by Lake Ponderé in northern Idaho. Hmm. So somewhere right around the Idaho-Montana uh, line, it was assumed the water met the ice, and the ice held it back until it, the water got 2,100 feet deep, at which point the ice couldn't hold it anymore, gave way, and all of this water back here in these valleys drained out and caused all of the erosion, 
that you see over here in southeastern Washington, all of this erosion down here the, called the channel scablands here, 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 here. You see all of that? Well, one of the things we're setting out to demonstrate is that the erosion we're looking at here, Grand Coulee, Moses Coulee here, down to Columbia here, all discharged out the Okanagan. And that over here, mm -hmm. where you see this, what's known as the Cheney Palouse, it was created by water discharging down the uh, Columbia Valley. Instead of coming all the way from over there. Exactly, exactly. And that water also came down the Purcell Trench mm -hmm. through here, mm -hmm. and it came down the Rocky Mountain Trench here. And this was the principal uh, conduit for water that then back flooded into these mountain valleys with no outlet except for the Clark Fork. Hmm. And you, and you and Brad, you were talking about a a drumlin field down there in, in the, the bottom. The, that dr would... the drumlin field that Brad is talking about is that the bottom of this trench is mantled with drumlins, basically right across the American border from yep. Canada. Yep. Re really, they're they're all the way south from the Columbia Reach that we were talking about earlier down down the trench and over into Montana. Which which if that could prove your theory in a way that the water flow was very fast and it wasn't happening over a long period yes, of time. Yes, and that, that this was that the source of the floodwaters was Canada. Yeah, and that Lake Missoula, there that there was most definitely a huge volume of water temporarily retained within those mountain valleys, but it wasn't the ultimate source. It was a result of yes, you got it. Yeah. Yes, something, some bug landed. Yeah, there's a bug. Oh yeah, mosquitoes Cedars, are a yeah. motherfucker. How are the it's mosquitoes in your beard in now? Was there anything yeah. like in the igloo? We didn't have any bug trouble. I, I was surprised. Yeah, we we thought it was going to be worse, and the windshield was going to be, you know, blasted and having to stop every half hour to After clean it out. But you started not bad. You started in the worst mosquitoes we in did. Canada. We did. So we did. So would it be all right for Ed to just say a few words about his impressions? Absolutely. Well, can yeah, we hear absolutely. from Ed? Yeah, I'm like just three hundred degrees of wow to start out. It was it was <laughs> it was, it was yeah, great. Yeah, right it was, uh, more than I expected. You know, you, you hear quieter. you hear you know you hear about it. You, you look at pictures, but it's just nothing like when you get out there and you see it. Boy, it, the, the magnitude of it, you just can't imagine. And we were standing next to some really intense waterfalls and water flows, and you think about that, and then stand there and look around and see what you know what the size of the, the the evidence left there makes this look you know minuscule compared to what was going on it's just a you know, really a hell of an experience and i really appreciate it. just your first time in the rockies ed no actually i was there uh two years ago we did did come up through uh southern rockies a little bit and i'd come out to columbia river at one point 2002 drove out that uh in the Columbia River Gorge there, and that that's what actually got my attention to this and Randall's work, kind of following what he's been doing. But Well, you know, me too, because way back in 1970, a year after I got out of high school, I did a traverse down the Columbia Gorge with, of course, not the slightest clue of anything that I was seeing or what, what it meant or how to interpret it, but I was so impressed by those landscapes that I never forgot it. Several decades later, I came back with the intention in mind of understanding the genesis of those remarkable landforms that we saw going down. 
going down to Columbia, which we, by the way, didn't do this time. How, how does Columbia Gorge play into this whole thing we're talking well, about? Okay, because all of the water that came down here, down here, out here, all converged at this point okay. right there called Wallula Gap. And there is a excellent little video, short video clip of me and Graham Hancock standing on the, the lip or the rim of Wallula Gap. And I'm explaining how that was the flow convergence point. For all of these streams of water hitting the, the basalt plateau, this big circular basalt plateau, which you can see very clearly on Google Earth, all of that, those streams of water, that was the gathering of the waters right there. And they flowed together, they flowed through that gap, and they flowed down through the Columbia Gorge out to the Pacific. And each stream would indicate a different impact. No, not necessarily. Not necess possibly, yes, but not necessarily. Um, because bear in mind that there were also copious giant meltwater streams coming off on the other side, on this side of the Continental Divide, that had nothing to do directly with the Missoula flood flows. Because it was, the, and they flowed off and generally carved what is now the Missouri River Valley. Well, uh, those were just really the, the paths of least resistance for the big flood, really, right? Where the water ended up going. Yes, that would be correct. And you see right here, this is the basalt plateau. And when the when the water came off that ice sheet, it just there was nothing to stop it once it hit that plateau. So it just rushed down off that plateau and it just scoured the hell out of it. Cut canyons and channels five hundred, six hundred, a thousand feet deep in literally a matter of days, maybe a few weeks, but in a range that, that clearly indicates that the that the tempo of this thing was catastrophic. And then all of that water converges at this Wallula Gap, and anybody can go, I'm sure it's, you have it up, it's up on Geocosmic Racks. Yeah, I'm sure that video can be accessed through Graham Hancock's website, but uh, we have quite a few, probably two dozen now videos of Randall, and, and that one with Graham Hancock at Wallula Gap, right, it's on a YouTube channel called Geocosmic Racks. Uh, partially research expeditions, but also uh, collisions between Earth and space. That's Geocosmic Wreck uh, on the YouTube channel. And then also, people go to Sacred Geometry International. They'll find a lot of stuff. Covering not only just the floods and stuff here, but other things, too, about Sacred Geometry and ancient architecture. The tempo of global change, which is something that has really fascinated me. And that's where, you know, if people read my stuff or look at the videos, they'll know that I'm working on trying to understand this relationship between space and time and how the geometry of space is reflected in the tempo of change as it manifests on the on say on the earth or at least in the in the universe any uh any books coming out anytime soon well that's i'm working i've been writing a lot this last year year and a half i've accumulated quite a bit of material what i need is just a little bit of time where nobody distracts me and take my uh cell phone off and turn it yeah. off and um Devote three or four months. Five yeah, I look months forward to it because I feel like you could just like take if you could just take it set set aside in time. I feel like you could just. I can already just in the few chats we've had, I can think of like four distinctly different topics for books that you could pile in that I would want all four of. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big incentive. I'll let you know. 
Yeah, I'll take the first uh, editions. Okay. Okay. Does anybody you're, else you're uh, anybody else want to say anything about the trip at all? If there's a I was thinking that George would have a few words. To yeah, say absolutely. Well, I've just I was just uh, astounded at the incredible natural beauty and the the landscape that I that I got to see, and I could I, visualizing these mega floods, looking at these great uh, meltwater channels and and drumlins and. Uh, Getting to see uh, the wild, you know, we saw, we saw one bear, several herds of Rocky Mountain sheep, and a couple of elk and a coyote, and and uh, it's just an amazing a place. A whack of salmon there. and a cat, and, yeah, and the spawning Chinook salmon there at the Swift Creek in uh, Belmont. That was, that was quite an experience. I had no idea that salmon was far upstream the ocean. But, uh, and I heard you're the orator of Plato. Oh well, uh, last night in the hotel, uh, uh, Randall got out his uh, Atlantis um, presentation. Um, there's a possible trip to the Azores in the works. Is that a secret that I shouldn't let out of the bag? I guess it's out now. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, and uh, so, but there's uh, some of, some of the material from Plato, the the original uh, source of the story of Atlantis, the Critias, is it Critias or Critias? Critias, Critias, and Timaeus. 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 And, and Critias, Critias, I don't know. Uh, I was reading some of that, some of the stuff that he had highlighted, and um, about the the myth of Phaeton. Phaeton, yes. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, Bill's going to say something too. Yeah. Everyone's going to take the mic for a minute now, and then we'll shut her okay. down. Yeah. So yeah, that that was my big uh, oration last night. Give uh, give yeah. twenty seconds on the myth of Phaeton before you turn over the mic. Well, I, I'm going to let you do that, Randall. You, no, you, no, no, it's George <laughs> time. Oh. <laughs> Well, okay, the, so I was the orator. That didn't mean I, I was the, the, the commentator, but uh, uh, Randall was doing the, the commentary. It, it, it's the story, what Phaeton is like, uh, he, he, his father was the one that drove the chariot across the sky, right? And that, his but father he, was Helios, Helios, the sun god. The sun god. Who okay. drove the chariot of the sun. Okay, but, but one day Phaeton decided to go steal the chariot. Sort of. And drive However, it. However, he does end up at the, at the helm of the chariot. Yeah, but it turns into a big disaster. Turns into a big disaster, and and as a result, these uh, bodies that were circling the, uh, ended up basically. If you, if you read it very closely, you can tell it's the story of a comet striking the Earth, right, huh. causing a catastrophe. But yeah, yeah, I go along with it. That's yeah. pretty much what this story. He's got a little mixed up, but you did a good job. <laughs> okay, you okay, did a good job. Okay, okay. And that's how Plato opens one of the dialogues with yeah. that with okay. that story. Plato opens the dialogues with a reference to the myth of fate. Hmm. Which Phaeton, is, in a sense, a, myth, a reference to an impact. Yes, I, I think it's, it's very evident that it can be interpreted that way. And, and Plato even makes that clear. He says, even though the myth, even though the story of Phaeton has the form of a myth, it actually... Uh, refers to a declination is the word in the Jawa translation, a declination of the bodies moving around the earth at regular intervals and a great conflagration of things after a long period of time. But so Plato actually says that the myth of Phaeton uh, refers to an impact. I mean, it's it's very clear. So I think it's... um, it's important to note that he opens the myth of Atlantis, the story of Atlantis, by reference to a myth, the myth of fate. Yeah, yeah. Which, again, just another clue, you know, that's piled upon an ever-growing mound of clues. Brian, Brian. We'll get Brian after, yeah. after Bill. Oh, is, is nice. Brian upset? 
I, I hope not. He, I think he's just going to relieve himself. Oh, okay. Not at the Continental Divide. He's not upset because he hadn't talked yet. No, he's next in line. I don't. I think he's. I. I thought he was actually trying to get out of talking. Oh, maybe he that's it. I think it's more likely that <laughs> than the other. Yeah. Okay. Because I just said that I was going to make everyone take the mic, but we, we can jump to Bill next. Bill. Uh, yeah, I'm ready to turn it over to Bill. Yeah. Just like yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again. Uh, well, well, we'll do a brief summary. I think after uh, after everyone gets their turn. But yeah, let's hear from Bill. He's a uh, one of our listeners. He kind of set the whole thing up. Well, not didn't set the whole thing up, but he definitely uh, was our connection to. Yeah, he was instrumental in us. In, instrumental Bill, in. The, we wouldn't be here tonight. Yeah, Let's exactly. He was definitely that. Not me. <laughs> Take I'm some not hundred percent sure that that mic's working. Can you just stand over by me, Bill? Sure. Perfect. Take this. Oh yeah. Okay. That works too. Hey guys. Hey. hey. How's it going? How was the trip? Excellent. How did you come to be in uh, in involved? Uh, YouTube. I found Randall you, through YouTube. YouTube or YouTube? YouTube. Us too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, Randall lived nearby in Decatur. I live uh, just outside Atlanta too. And uh, we talked a few times and hung out. And Randall was kind enough to invite me to come along and help on the trip. Yeah, that's great. It's nice he to meet you. Yeah. Tremendous help. Yeah. Tremendous help. Yeah, no, it's nice to meet you in person. Oh, Bill has, all those long emails. Uh, yeah, he's contributed to the show in some pretty profound ways that we'll find out over the next few episodes, I'm sure. I hope it trickles Indirectly. down. Indirectly. Oh, yep. right, yeah. Indirectly. But how was the trip in general? Uh, it was excellent. I'd never been to this part of the country before. So it's always nice to be in the Rocky Mountains, but I hadn't been in anything as severe as where we were mostly like in Banff and Jasper actually coming down the past two days was extraordinary. Seeing the ice fields particularly was something I'd never laid eyes on. I've never even seen the ice fields. They're incredible. They're only, uh, like, they're only like two hours away. I know, know, man. Fuck. I'm busy. <laughs> Close your mind. is uh, somebody coming from Georgia to see ice yeah. at all in the <laughs> middle of summertime. But as much as that too, I've had flip flops on most of the time and been nice. freezing most evenings. I'm busy fucking podcasting to go check out the ice field. Podcasting and children take up 90% of my day. Podcasting, children, work, and my wife, and I'm, there's nothing left. Better take care of yourself there, buddy. The wife takes care of me. <laughs> uh, let's pass it on. No, Okay. Well, thanks, Bill. All right. Bill needs to write down to, <laughs> yeah. to be here. Take it easy. Really right? yeah. off guard. Yeah. yeah. Take it easy, guys. Okay. Right. How about Brian? Brian. Say hello, Brian. Well, hello. So I hope that we can exchange some of these pictures so we can get them online on with the podcast. So people yeah. can kind of see this stuff. That's what yeah, I was definitely thinking, on the YouTube video on this one. And actually, I'm going to, I, I had a guy offer to help out with that. So I'm thinking if you can get me the pictures and stuff, I can kind of, oh, what a task to No, I'll, I'll help you. I, I was okay. watching when, when we were talking about the pictures that he had okay. up and stuff. So. Grab remember. So I'm we're going to be just fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, between uh, definitely this episode and last episode, I, I mean, we've, we've, duh, I've had too much wine. We've re released them already um, audio, but I think we can clean them up a bit with some pictures now, especially after your trip, even from the first episode. And we can go through them and make uh, some special content for sure. 
dedicate some posts on Great America Forum, or if you guys are doing something with them, we can link to it, or we can do something on Great America with the pictures and maybe even um, some some blogging or, or whatever in, in some way or sh shape or form for sure. But definitely on the YouTube channel, I think we can make something happen. Because the pictures are phenomenal, and they definitely add to the to the experience. Speaking of the pictures, I think you took most of them. Yeah, I. Uh, he took all. Look the at that! Look at that picture. Yeah, right everything there. we've been going through is, is stuff I took. He was our main. The only thing that depresses me in that picture is it looks like it reminds me of fall, and it was cold today. Because oh, the changing evergreen. Yeah, you guys well, don't have to deal just, with. This fall is your like classic fall desktop is, background, right? Fall's here. super <laughs> depressing up here because it's right before super cold winter, <laughs> and it happens in like two weeks. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's like words. Anytime after September first is pretty well game on for fall. Could be any time after that. Yeah, yeah, it's serious. It yeah. sucks. Uh, so I have to say, Brian particularly fell in love with the poutine. That was his. Uh, Thing. Oh, that's right. Everywhere Did Lisa we get you yeah. the bib? Did my wife get you the bib? Oh, no, not yet. I'll grab that before you leave. You know, sure. we don't really have poutine in the States, especially in Atlanta. And uh, I, we did, you know, a, a meltwater tour and a poutine tour. So where's the best poutine? Well, it was the best was at that pub we went to somewhere in the trench. It was duck confit poutine. Wow, oh, it was, yeah, it was excellent. Yeah, that what's that? Too. Yeah, it was duck. There was duck in the poutine. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's too bad you weren't staying one more night because uh, there's a poutinery in town. Actually, it's a just poutine. a <laughs> yeah. It, it's actually a fucking. Uh, it's a Joey's Urban, which I think is a spinoff of Joey's Only Seafood. But so they do fish and poutine, but yeah, it's pretty good. Search when we're back. We'll yeah, poutinery. I mean, they even got the, they even got poutine potato chips. Why don't here. you just fucking? You should just open one up. Have the best fucking poutine in Georgia. I don't, well, you know, I, I'm I not even sure how many people know about it yet. Well, you we'll have, have to create to, the market. Yeah, right? yeah. You do like uh, you got to give out free poutines. Just run around. Yeah, that'd be the start a food truck. Start a poutine food truck. That's exactly. the real way. To right do outside it. some yeah. fucking bar downtown and just let the smell sells itself. It sells itself. Yeah. So, so any highlights for you, Brian, on the trip? Well, I, I've known Randall for a number of years, since like 2009. At least. I think 2008, 2009, I met him, and I took his sacred geometry class and uh, went through, I think, two or, two or three sessions of that and then helped him. I was like, a, I was like the TA for the class, where I was, I was like the, the assistant who would help people draw the... the figures and stuff and so i've been familiar with his work and research for a while but this was the first trip i got to go on where i actually saw it first person firsthand and the different you know google earth is amazing and i can't imagine how much more difficult this work would be without google earth honestly because you you can see it so clearly in there but even all the maps and all the charts it doesn't compare to when you're staring right at the awesome nature of it right in front of you and imagining two miles of ice above you. And like some of these waterfalls we saw, they just have this incredible roaring power. And then you're looking at that and you're thinking about something, you know, a hundred times that size, a thousand times that size, cutting through this rock. And it's it's just incredible. It's 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 
daunting. It's uh, intimidating. It's, it, it, I mean, it, it, it was amazing to really finally like see it with my own eyes and not just see pictures and not just try to think about it, but to like see it, you know? And that's the thing I'm definitely going to take away from it. Well, even as fucking people with it in our backyard, I mean, I can look at it in a new light now, like a new sort of respect, even looking at the pictures. And I haven't even really gone there since hearing this side of the story where before, I mean, you just drive through them and they look cool. But now once you start hearing some of the theory behind it, I mean, it's pretty hard to ignore as soon as you look at it. Like it's now when Brian's going through his pictures, which are amazing. And I'm going to see if I can't figure out a way to make it this. So they just kind of flicker through the whole time. If you send me the thing, I'll talk to my web guy and, darnelldigitalink.com I'll have my people talk to your people we'll arrange a contract or volunteer people (laughs) so I can't wait to head out there again with that new knowledge in hand Yeah. but then we should also thank Brian for the music for the last episode oh yeah how do you pronounce it Kinara Kinara yeah Kinara yeah Yeah. what was uh, I had it written down like a Kinara in the coal mine yeah I think you said Secret Fire Secret Fire yeah Secret Fire yeah that's my single from the album early I'm gonna, I'll go through and I'll use that. So I'll use your a couple tunes for this one as well. Okay. And yeah, right. yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's nice. great music. I went through a bunch of it the other night when I was all baked. Fucking yeah, cool. Allegedly. Yeah, I have a uh, if you like psychedelic electronic music, I have a SoundCloud at uh, SoundCloud.com/slash/Kynara Music. K Y N A R A. Nice. My little project. Yeah, we'll, down listen, in we'll listen. Listen. Add the link to it in the show notes for sure. And uh, yeah, actually look for that on upcoming episodes because I talked to Brian and he's going to give me some links and we'll, I'll use that uh, periodically over the next whenever I need some music. Mm-hmm. I just, um, so I, does, does anyone else have anything else yeah. before we start wrapping it up? Yeah, other, Graham, than Graham? Graham other than Graham? Graham has something Other than Graham? <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else? We'd like to hear from Graham. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just want to say what a pleasure it was meeting all you guys in person. And some of you I've already met in person, but to have you guys here and uh, and to have just so so many cool open conversations, and that's what I just love about all this is not the podcasting part, but just like the hanging out with you guys and being able to talk about everything from you know evolution to electronic music and electronical. You like that electronic music? Yeah. 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 Graham made up another word. <laughs> Yeah, that was another big thing that I'm definitely taking away from this trip is there's like 10 days of a nonstop invigorating conversation with a bunch of awesome people. Yeah. And it never seemed to stop. And uh, it, was, it was just a fantastic time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'd have to say uh, I can speak for Graham saying this is probably one of the ultimate cultivations of the uh, things that the podcast has cultivated so far. Like, I mean, Sure, we get some donations and we get jingles and we get all people helping out with the newsletter and the website and all this stuff. And that's all that's all fantastic. But uh, to to be sitting in the room here with I think there's eight of us in here tonight and we went to Revelstoke together and we had some good times and fucking you know what I mean? We we made some memories and we did a couple podcasts and it's this is probably one of the, the best things that can come about. I mean, if we never started this stupid little podcast a couple of years ago, then then this is kind of, you know, this is one of those little rewards that you don't see coming, but it's definitely one of the bigger ones that, you know, we made a couple, so, you, something you never forget sort of thing. And I'd like to thank all you guys for coming on down. And thank you, Doug. I think we've, had I've had, I've had some thank fucking you. great thank conversations so with everybody in this room and, 
Yeah, and I can't wait to see you guys see you guys again. I'll be in Georgia next time. Actually, I'll see a bunch of you, I'm assuming, in Minnesota in just I probably so. like a month and a half. Yeah, yeah well, you it'd be cool if I seen all of you in like yeah. another month and a half. It'd be yeah, like a recap. Found. It'll be a recap in our hotel room. Well, if you buy your if you buy your tickets and oh, say, shit. Uh, yeah, if you we call that number and that. say, uh, <clears throat> say the Grand America show, you no, get twenty percent off. Give the it. number off. Keep talking. Keep talking. Yeah. So yeah, let's talk about paradigm. Talk about paradigm a bit. Yeah, well, Randall's going to be there presenting again this year, and so is Ed. There's a whole bunch of uh, other people. Right, Ed you were did, there. I did not. So you I, didn't sign the banner that. either. You're not oh, yeah, leaving. Right. You're not going to bed before you sign the banner. <laughs> <laughs> Randall's presenting for the first time. Ed's presenting again at Paradigm. And uh, if you mention the Great America Show, you can call this number, and I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, you get 20% off a weekend pass. They're doing a little podcast promotion thing. So there'll be a few podcasters there as well. Lots of good conversation like this, as usual. That's what I was going to say. I think almost everyone in this room is going to be there. Hopefully. hopefully. There's a couple hopefullys and a couple for sure. As we know Ed, Brad, and Randall, myself, and Graham will be there. Yeah. RPJ. Yeah. And, yeah, we just got word that we're allowed to give Grand America listeners 20% off of uh, admission. Um. But you're not allowed to do it online. You have to do it through the phone number. I'm just finding the phone number. Now you got to call Scotty Roberts directly. But yeah, if you call Scotty at, and we'll link to this in the show notes, it's 651-468-8115. 651-468-8115. Call, say you heard on America that you were getting 20% off, and you will get 20% off. And you can... Uh, Tell anyone else who's buying tickets to say the same thing, and away you go. Yeah, come down to Paradigm. That's the first weekend of October, right? Yeah, that's where we first met. First weekend yeah. of October. Yeah. Friendships are formed at Paradigm Symposium. <laughs> and hey, that's my hometown, sort of. Exactly. Right. So yeah. maybe we could get a little side tour. Did anything cool happen in Minnesota? Must have. I still hey, can't listen. believe, and even Joe Rogan said it, but the thing that blows me away that is that there was fucking Ontario and all that shit was under fucking a couple hundred feet of ice 10,000 years ago, yeah. and I can go to any fucking lake within a hundred miles of my hometown and catch a fish within like five minutes. I don't get it. How the fuck does that happen? How does every lake fill up with fish in just 10,000 years? When the, were the fish alive underneath? I'll, I'll explain that. Can I explain it? Please. Oh, God. <laughs> the birds that travel from lake to lake get stuff stuck on them, and then it comes off in the but next lake. But it was lake. under a thousand fucking feet of ice. So the birds carried those, the, the fresh yeah, water the birds fish from migrate, the ocean? Yeah, yeah the well, birds migrate. The birds didn't migrate until the ice was gone. So. Yeah, and then they have, like, uh, shit on their beaks and stuff. It's not enough time. It's not enough time. I mean... Is it possible that the birds could swallow the fish eggs and then I think the defecate fit, them out in another I think it, lake? I think not? it's more that it's, um, I don't know. I like to believe it's more more something along the lines that's life. Life's there already. Just well, needs the fucking. A, just needs the fucking. It life's dormant, fucking everywhere. Not just on Earth, but everywhere in the preservation. Universe. You mean? Yeah, life's Frozen. there as soon as the conditions are there. It happens. Well, the the book uh, Krakatoa by Simon Winchester has a great example of that. When Krakatoa happened and that island came up, basically the volcano keeps building itself under the water, and it pops up out of the water, and within years it's teeming with life. So I would even say like teeming with. Life. I would even say if like a dead planet, say something out in the outer ring like Neptune, if it gets hit by something. 
and it fucking heats up shit long enough that some sort of life will fucking briefly occur before it cools down and everything dies again. Listen, man, it's not on, you know, it's not um, pseudoscience that uh, comets probably harbor the, you know, the, the um, precursors of life in a lot of different forms. So the same object which might cause a destruction might also contribute to a new creation. Yeah. I think so. it's even bigger than that, though. I think life's just there. Life's fucking dormant everywhere. As soon as that's what the universe is there for, fucking life. As soon as the conditions are right, it happens. If you so, I guess in saying that, I'm saying if you found any other planet that was just like Earth, then there'd be life there, guaranteed. Good luck finding another planet just like Earth, or that's, even that's even close thing. to Earth. You know what I mean? Like I'm just saying. Life as we know it. So if you if there's a planet with fucking water in the same amount of time as Earth, then it'll have something. Yep, I agree. But I'm just some fucking asshole in my garage. So <laughs> take it for what it's worth. <laughs> On saying that, I guess I'd like to thank everyone for joining us. It's been a great couple of weekends. Uh, thanks to Greasy Graham, and uh, we'll see you next week.